Welcome to The Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscars. I'm your host, Jen Subchakjai Banker, and we are a trio today, uh, though hopefully we do not get stuck on a train to India. I'm with the self-proclaimed fantastic Mr. Greg, as he, he very cleverly put on his window, <laughs> video window. Uh, Greg Cass, how's it uh, going, Let's Greg? say I'm in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian. <laughs> I'm actually not, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the line. Um, and I'm also here with a friend for whom I would gladly serve as lobby boy, P.T. McDiff. How's it going, P.T.? Am I not in this scene? Uh, it, it's good to be here, Jen. Thank you. If, if you're not a Wes Anderson fan, none of that made sense. Um, but we are t- here talking about Wes Anderson's newest film, Asteroid City, today. Uh, if you're listening to us for the first time, we have a short section at the beginning designed for those who haven't seen the film yet so if you're just curious about it want to know if it's something you'd be into give us a listen for for the first 30 or 40 minutes then we will very issue a very clear spoiler warning before we dig deeper into the film uh but before we begin to begin to contemplate whether or not we are alone in the universe that may be a spoiler we'll start with a quick movie news check-in what's going on in your movie worlds. We'll start uh, with Greg. I am in severe Indiana Jones countdown uh, mode. And so while I know this podcast has been on at least three roller coasters related to Dial of Destiny, I will say that as I look at the fans I know who got invited to the premiere and I look at the podcasters and critics I trust, such as Joanna Robinson, uh, they love it. So I think the the can reviews were too grumpy French and we're going to be in for a good time, maybe not a great time. That's my expectation. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And Joanna Robinson in particular, once you said that because you texted me that earlier today, it was like, oh, because she's really good at compartmentalizing her fan heart from her critic brain. And I feel like she's one of those podcasters that if she doesn't it doesn't care for something she's very honest but very nice about it and so the fact that she's over the moon about this is a really good and then the other thing i just wanted to mention is um i thought it was great when you were talking on your past live show about like what trailers get packaged with the film and i was surprised by a trailer i've gotten a lot of the same old stuff lately when i've been to the movies but on asteroid city they included a trailer for uh, drive away dolls, which um, I did not have on my radar for fall. It is an effort from, oh gosh, Ethan Cohen, one of the two Cohen brothers, uh, and stars uh, Margaret Qualley and uh, Beanie Feldstein, amongst many others who happen to include Pedro Pascal and Matt Damon. Um, and so all of that kind of mixed together in a seemingly Coen Brothers Fargo-esque caper got me really, really excited. So I don't know if there will be a draft for fall movie season, but that might have suddenly arrived on my <laughs> radar um, as a fun looking movie. I also just think Margaret Qualley's like on the verge of having an incredible career. Like she's really on fire lately. I did that. That being said, I did not see the dominatrix movie. I want that out there on the public record, but people said she was very good in that. (laughs) You did not see the dominatrix movie. I think it did hit streaming, which is more palatable to me, but we'll see. Honestly, Greg, most people listening to this probably didn't even know that was a thing that existed. So you, you, That was really self-effacing there. Um, All right. And how about PT? Uh, What, what, 
what is going on in in your movie world right now? I, I have not seen the Dominatrix movie. T-shirt is <laughs> causing a, a lot of questions <laughs> already answered. Bye. Uh, I uh, I also I mean I'm also in Indiana Jones prep mode. I should maybe save this for the uh, Indiana Jones prep episode we're going to do. But I will. Uh, it's fresh, so I will say that today uh, I'm teaching, uh, or you know, for this this the, for a few weeks I'm teaching a class um, that I do every summer that is high school students instead of college students um, coming to our our college campus. Uh, and they were I overheard them discussing that they are. Over the Fourth of July weekend, the whole like six hundred people uh, in the program are going to a rented out movie theater, and they were like, "What movie are we seeing?" And they were like, "I think it's the new Indiana Jones." And from the mouth of a seventeen-year-old, we're the only people in America who are going to see that. No one cares about that movie. So the hype has not trickled down to high school students. Uh, so at least this this group of high school students, because they were all bummed at the idea they might have to quote unquote go see indiana jones so we'll see anyway that's, uh sorry that was, that was a real was a real downer you cannot the listeners cannot see the frowns that are being uh thrown at me but that's that's okay um so <clears throat> i uh i also saw the uh driveway dolls trailer i also thought it was interesting um it would be fun i guess if this Cohen Brothers schism just leads to double the amount of Cohen brothery movies um that that come out although i guess um, the Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, Macbeth wasn't particularly Cohen Brothersy, um, but uh, but this new one does look like it's it's very very on brand. Um, so that was fun. Uh, I also saw. Uh, I don't want to belabor talking about it, but I saw Past Lives after the release of the podcast episode, and just want to reiterate that it is absolutely phenomenal, and everyone should go and see that. Um, and the trailer that I saw behind both Past Lives and Asteroid City um, is for the new Yorgos Lanthimos mm. movie, Poor Things, um, with uh, Emma Stone and Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo and a bunch of other people. Um, and it looks absolutely wild. Uh, Mark Ruffalo is uh, out of his mind uh, in terms of hemming it up in every every moment that he's on screen. And Emma Stone is doing some amazing physical acting, it looks like. Um, and it looks like it's going to be absolutely bonkers. So I'm excited for, uh, for that and, and to see what the new, the new Yorgos has in store. I, for I just want to, I think I've only seen stills or ads for that. Not, a, I haven't watched the trailer yet. And those alone, cause there's a lot of makeup mm. smearing and a lot of like creepy doll, creepy clown kind of vibes. So no, no problem. Sorry, I just want to throw in, I'm, I'm very excited to see some non MCU Ruffalo um, because while I love Marvel mm -hmm. and I see everything they do, I do hate that we lose some performances from these great actors who are stuck in the Marvel machine for a really, really long time and don't seem to be able to escape. Now I'm sure that comment erases like four fantastic Mark Ruffalo performances that he's done in the last five years. I just don't see any of them, but maybe that will come up later with another, uh, with somebody in Asteroid City who I think got stuck in the Marvel machine for a while. Ooh, that's a good tease. Uh, um, RIP to, to Dark Waters, <laughs> the, uh, the Todd Haynes movie that, that came and went uh, starring Mark yeah. Ruffalo in the last five years. I was going to say, was Spotlight before or after he was the Hulk? I don't remember. Yeah, it was that's, after. That's the last big was, role that's not MCU that I remember him. Yeah, it was It was after. He had, he had Hulk, been Hulking <laughs> up for a little while. Okay. Um, I only have a little bit of actual news. 
or movie movie like industry news, I guess I should say. Uh, San Diego Comic Con, you know, is back again this year in person. I think that last year was their their first in person convention since the pandemic. But news just broke that a bunch of major studios have pulled out of Comic Con, so they won't be presenting or you know dropping any trailers or anything like that. So I think it's Marvel, Netflix, Universal, and Sony. So a lot of big hitters, and I mean. I think Marvel, as post Disney, has kind of diminished their presence at Comic Con in general because they they're they have D twenty three right like they have other venues through which to kind of hype up their stuff. Um, so I'm that that is I think probably just a part of the general trajectory. But the the rest of them is that's a pretty big hit, and and I think Comic Con really has been known for big film previews and and just film and tv in general as opposed to comics um and i should also add that that this is happening because of the uh, labor negotiations so it's not just the writer strike specifically but also because sag um sag after is in negotiations and and so a lot of these studios were just like you know since that's going on we're gonna pull out of comic-con um and then the other the other piece of news that just broke today, which I didn't put in our Google Doc because it was pretty fresh, was the casting news for Superman Legacy, so the mm. James Gunn Superman movie. Uh, and that's only notable because I love Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, <laughs> and Rachel Brosnahan is going to be our next mm. Lois Lane. So I have, I actually don't know who the actor who's going to be Superman. He looks Superman-y. <laughs> I don't know. Midwestern mm. farm boy type slash Kryptonian. Well, he actually looks slightly less like that. He's less chiseled than. Well, he's got I'm time to chisel. Give him a break. I feel like. <laughs> I will say. Uh, so I sat out the Flash, uh, and I have enjoyed, as particularly the two of you on this podcast, debating whether the Flash would be good or not, and then finally being like, "Why did they tell us this would be so great?" And and he kind of blew it, um, but. I, I just got to say, I am in the camp that's like, not that Marvel versus DC is anything real that really matters, but it's like, I just have no interest in everything they're up to. Now, Guardians 3 was great, and James Gunn does great work, so maybe I should get excited, but it, it is also a nice experience to sometimes sit on the outside of a fandom, which my wallet suggests I should do more often. <laughs> it is interesting me that it's interesting that the like i i'm also sort of banking on all right well it's james gunn and i like james gunn's movies that he's done uh in the superhero mold so that should be good um but his whole thing has been like weird quirky like side characters that are not particularly prominent being brought into the forefront in a found family situation and now he's doing like the superhero it's like the mm -hmm. the guy in the middle um is that going to be something that like connects with his voice is his voice going to be totally different um you know is this going to be a weird sort of second coming of the the sort of kevin smith scripts of superman where it's like kind of gross out jokes mixed in with like a hyper comic nerd uh story i don't know i feel like we don't know um i'm yeah i'm not like super invested um, but, uh, I, I will go and see Superman when it comes out. Uh, and I also, um, held strong and did not see the flash and I feel great about it. Oh, I'm the only <laughs> sucker among us, I guess. 
<laughs> and you, you can check out uh, my very lukewarm feelings <laughs> about the flash <laughs> in my written review on the long take. Um, but yeah, uh, so the, in case anyone cares, no one cares, probably David Corinsway apparently was on house of cards and the politician, but oh. I don't really remember him. I've, I've, I've seen house of cards, but I don't remember him anyway. That's, that's who's going to be our next Superman. I, mean, I do think a lot of people tuning into the Wes Anderson episode are yeah. really want to know. No, they're really here for the Superman Wes Anderson. That's just a circle. That's not a Venn diagram. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Right>. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's actually a perfect segue uh, to talking about Asteroid City, which I know we're all really, really excited to talk about. So I want to start with the short take, and hopefully this time we can actually keep it short so we can can move on to the other sections and get, you know, because I think all of us are really excited to kind of dig in and unpack this one because there's a lot going on in it. Um, so what were your, both of your general impressions? Like, just give us the short take. Nope. We'll start with Greg. Uh, yeah, you got called out. I, you Jen go wasn't watching the video. I cued PT. He's like, you can go first. And then you said my name. Oh, uh, you're good. Oh, sorry. Uh, Oh man. So, um, this is a safe space, right? Like there's no like bully lurking behind one of you who's going to come stuff me in a locker. Um, so I have been three times, uh, in the four days it's been out. Uh, so it took me a little while, uh, because I think this is a tougher Wes Anderson candy to chew. Uh, but, I have come to a place where I'm very positive on it. So I really like this film, but I think it is a more challenging film than a lot of his other works. Um, What came to mind is uh, my light just gave out for drama. Uh, What what came to mind is (laughs) that that was a very Wes Anderson thing. If you watch um, Darjeeling limited and like at the end of the movie, they're dropping the luggage and it's like, Oh, it's their baggage, their emotional baggage. Like it is not complicated storytelling. Whereas I think um, Asteroid City is very uh, complex in its storytelling and not superficial in any way and kind of locking in on any singular symbol or metaphor for it um, can't happen. So uh, I would say good movie. I am positive, uh, but I think it is going to be a tough pill for kind of John and Jane Q movie goer. I think this is one for the Westheads, if I had to say. That's that's very much in line with what I was going to say, except I only saw it once. Um, but <laughs> for now, at this point. Um, but yeah, I think that I, I did like it. I liked it a lot. Uh, and I, I thought that there was I mean, I don't want to say that there was more depth as if there's not depth in other Wes Anderson movies, but there, it was it was reaching out and trying to encompass a lot. Um, and I think that that is uh, good. And I and I did I did like that. Um, but I think that the fact that it's it's doing that um, and the fact that it is it, it feels so much like. Uh, it, it, it there's so much of it that harkens back to different Wes Anderson movies, um, and I don't know how much of that was intentional or or not, but it almost felt like a sort of um, like it's like when a when a band puts out like it puts out a, like a greatest hits and then puts like a couple new songs on it um, <laughs> at the end, where it's like it's like you could get all of Wes Anderson's movies, and then you're just like, well, here's stuff that they, we thought would fit mm-hmm. with all the other ones too. Um, that there's there's like there's like tastes of a lot of other Wes movies. Um, so 
um, I think that the, given the scope and given that that kind of tie to um, all that came before, uh, it's going to be hard to get people who are not already like, there's a new Wes Anderson movie. I'm excited. The people who have been a little bit like, uh, I'm out since Grand Budapest or I'm out since Steve Zizou or I'm out since Tenenbaums. I don't know if this is going to bring them back. Like, I think that like, this is more, more of this, but I do think there is a lot going on. I think there's something interesting about how uh, of all of the sort of talk that we'll get into about like the Wes Anderson aesthetic um, being so identifiable that this was a movie where the aesthetic and the artifice became the text uh, of, of what was happening. And I think that that was intentional. Uh, and, and I think that that's interesting if not necessarily always successful for everyone. I'm in agreement with this. I think I was higher. So Greg, I'm curious, just as a follow-up question, after viewing number one, what was your reaction? Yeah. Po- you said you're very positive after three viewings. So like, what was really your initial unsure. reaction? Um, so again, I, I'm not going to put this like strictly numerical, but I was maybe down around like two and a half, three, and then I popped up to like four, four and a half by the time I've seen it a few times. And um, to me, that's a strength, right? Like um, I do a Wes Anderson watch through every year. And so it's like, this is one I'm going to like return to a lot and get more from each time. Um, Whereas some of the other ones, as I alluded to, don't like reward repeat viewing. They're still enjoyable, but it's not like I'm discovering something new in a lot of these texts. So, um, and I, I will save uh, my second viewing had a particularly funny circumstance that we can get into in a moment, but go ahead and give us your thoughts. Okay. Yeah. So, so my initial reaction, the second the movie ended, I was like, I got to see that again. I haven't had the chance to, I, you know, I'm jealous that Greg, that you've seen it three times now. Cause I feel like it is one of those films that begs, rewatching because to just process everything that's happening because i knew i was like there you know i I was like i generally love this i'm very happy i saw this i feel like i need to watch it again to fully appreciate it um just because i know that there were things that i missed um so i totally agree that like and you know this is this is starting to creep into our next section so maybe we'll spend less time (laughs) when we actually get to the, the the recommendation section but i do think you're absolutely right that like if you are not already into Wes Anderson, this is not like, or if you've never seen any Wes Anderson movies, this is not the one to start with, probably. Um, that said, if you are, I feel like this really feels like the evolution of an auteur to go back to what you were both saying about like that there, uh, there are, there's, you can see a lot of the other, his other films in this film. And I feel like that was what was so great about it is that it feels like he's been kind of like iterating on certain themes or certain character types. And here they kind of all converge in a way that I thought worked really well. So even though what was interesting is that even though I knew that there were things that I missed or that I would need to watch again to fully process, I still was like, this is giving me all the joy that any Wes Anderson movie that I like gives, right? Like I cackled through the whole thing. I thought the writing was super sharp. Uh, it's really goofy and quirky in the way that I, that the re- like all the reasons I love Wes Anderson in general were here for me. And so in some ways, things that I to- kind of was like, oh, like, what was that? Like, I didn't totally catch that sort of washed over me in a way that I was like, oh, I'll just get that on the next viewing. You know, like it, it didn't really, the fact that there was, it was so densely packed didn't really undermine my enjoyment, if that makes sense. Um 
And I do feel like this one is this one is a really profound in a way that like once you start piecing threads together uh, in terms of the themes and kind of the, how the different parts of the story kind of fit together, I feel like it comes together in a really beautiful way. So and I'm really excited to talk about how that it might it might be happening <laughs> later when we're in the spoiler section. Um, but yeah, so so we want to do the recommendation algorithm We've already said that like there's a barrier to entry here compared to other Wes Anderson films. Do what are what are our thoughts on like if I guess like if someone's already seen some of the other Wes Anderson films, is there one in particular that you would point to to be like, well, if you're a fan of this one, mm -hmm. then you also like this one, or like what, what kind of what kind of recommendation or like who are you recommending this film to specifically? I mean, I, to me, I think that's hard because it isn't like, oh, do you like this movie? There's a one-to-one -one comparison, but it's more like a sampler platter of like, do, do you want more little Max, Max Fishers from Rushmore? Like, we've got a bunch of nerdy, like, young teens here. Um, do you want a multi-generational dysfunctional family like Royal Tenenbaums? We have that uh, in this one. Um, you know, do you... Uh, uh, um, you know, do you want some, like, storytelling... Uh, stuff like from the French Dispatch, which uh, I think in the wider world, uh, a lot of people don't, but in, in this in this <laughs> podcast, we all do. Um, there's there's parts of that here too. Um, and yeah, the sort of um, back, like sly background commentary on the sociopolitical context in which this takes place of Grand Budapest Hotel is also in this. And so like, I think there's little elements um, from from all of his movies. But, you know, I think it would be more like, do you want to, like, vibe on a Wes Anderson tip for a little while? Like, this is going to be great if you do. Um, and maybe someone who's never gotten into Wes Anderson could watch this and totally enjoy it um, because it would be their first exposure. Um, but I do think the big issue would be people that are like, eh, I'm over it or like, I'm not interested because they're probably not going to be won over. I think to me, the hardest pill to swallow here is the um, layers of artifice and intertextuality between the different strands, um, which can I, and and back to your question, Jen, I think my first viewing, I was trying to puzzle that out and it, it was so tricky that I wasn't there and it took a couple viewings to get me there. So in that regard, you know, I would say the steps from Grand Budapest to French Dispatch to to Asteroid City, that's a clear trajectory to me about a guy who likes to really play with frame narratives and frames within frames and the interaction between those elements. Um, so I would that would probably be the clearest comp. I agree with whatever, with, with everything uh, that PT just said, not with whatever I was listening, uh, but with what you just said, which is uh, that, you know, there is a lot of sampling here of all the other, uh, you know, your allusion to the greatest hist album is exactly right. Um, but I do think that if you are not going to like this, it's probably the layering in the frame narratives that get in your way. Um, whereas, you know, if somebody was like, Moonrise Kingdom is my favorite one, I'd be like, well, there's a plot that's very similar to Moonrise Kingdom, but it is much mm -hmm. more like surrounded by all this stuff you might not enjoy here. So if somebody said uh, French Dispatch was their favorite Wes Anderson, I would, you know, first give the obligatory fist bump or like salute from a beret to them, uh, tip of the beret <laughs> to them. Uh, but then I would uh, say this is definitely, um, you know, uh, an intensification in a great way of a further abstraction from that in uh, they should check it out. 
But uh, if this were like, hey, mom, guess what just popped on Netflix? I'd be like, no, skip it. Extraction two, mom. <laughs> You're going to have a better time. <laughs> This is going to be a movie that's going to get on Netflix or Amazon Prime and have two stars because a bunch of people are going to start watching it and be like, what the hell? Uh, And then rate it low and turn it off. But at the same time, I wonder if it's a movie. I'm not recommending that anyone engage with this film in this way at all, but I can picture someone clicking on it on Amazon Prime and then just letting it run in the background. And I feel like that actually might be if you're not going to be fully engaged and understanding what's trying to understand what's going on that Mm. that other extreme might actually work in its favor because then you get you just get all the vibes and (laughs) don't have to think think that hard i guess um so yeah at the risk of making myself look really bad um after the we were walking out of the theater and i turned to my husband john and i said this one's gonna be tough (laughs) for the normies and he his his response very reasonably was like, "Don't be an elitist <laughs> jerk," <laughs> and I was like, "Fair, that's fair." <laughs> just, just, and I'm like, "But I don't." And then I had to say, I had to try to like walk back what I said and be like, "Well, I don't mean you. You're not a normie. Like you're like someone who appreciates literature and art and like you know, like I just mean like the people who are looking for the the like mindless Netflix movie. Like this is the opposite of that, right? So, um, oh, it's Tom yeah. Hanks and Scarlett Johansson. I like them. <laughs> Click." Well, well, maybe uh-huh. there's the moment <laughs> you mentioned. So I went to two screenings Thursday night. I went to the 7.30 and the 9.45, uh, which at AMC means it started rolling at about 10.15. And so behind me were like the broiest broy college dudes. And I was like, how did you end up here? Like, I want to interview you all and understand why you purchased this ticket. I mean, the flash is right down the hall. I, you know, I'm being an elitist snob right now, live on air. Um, and they were not into it, except for a very specific moment that I bet you can guess off the top of your head, uh, where they high fived and said, yeah. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But so I, you know, at the end of it, one of them stood up and said, like, what was that? And I think that is what the casual clicker will get. And and I don't mean to be elitist. Of course, people can appreciate this without understanding all the intricacies and so on. But um, it really is. I, I think the flashy cast, if I had to guess, will bring in a lot of normies. People will be like, I can't ignore all those people in a movie. But, um, you know, my experience of Moonrise Kingdom was the projector gave out halfway through and they paused the movie for like 10 minutes and a bunch of women got up and said like, well, this sucks anyway, let's go. And like, I, I imagine them and it's like, yeah, if it, I think Wes Anderson is an acquired taste and I love him unabashedly, but I would be the first to admit not everybody likes him. And so if you're, I, you said it right, Jen, if you're not already in or you're just there because of a cool cast list, I don't think this is going to work for you. This is maybe too much of a tangent so i'm gonna let jen cut this out if it's not worth it but i just want to say that that's the story of the those bros um takes me way back to seeing to opening night of eyes wide shut at the revere <laughs> showcase cinemas uh now, on, it's on now route a one. car dealership uh, yes, and uh, rest in peace <laughs> look i don't i'm not ready to talk about that yet i hope the flea market is still there in on sundays um but the uh, yeah, there was, it, it wasn't bros. I think it was actually like a family, but it was like a bunch of normies. Um, and they were there, uh, to, to see the hot mm. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, like erotic thriller. And that movie ended. 
And the first thing I heard when it cut to the credits was this guy stood up and just goes, that sucked. <laughs> and, and like very like, or like so mad that like he had wasted his time on it. And then he like, stormed out. Yeah, he made yeah. it to the end. Uh, but he did not. He did not like it, and so I'm not. It's not quite comparable. Um, uh, although they they probably the people there might have uh, inwardly high fived <laughs> at a similar moment uh, in that movie to the moment in this movie. Um, but uh, yeah, there, I think there is something about like you know, there's there's a certain type of moviegoer that will this will appeal to, and um, we don't elitist versus normie like i don't want to get into all that let's just say that like there's there those people are not the kind of people who uh who and, will and like let's be honest like this i already regret introducing this toxic language <laughs> but let's be honest podcast. why why we all love west Hampton is just a little bit because it's like a little club right it is like a little elitist club and you know we get to to be members of it and so we we can we can be that way and uh exactly like you said jen we are as toxic as if not more than the bro showing up for those movies so yes my i'm not being an elitist about wes anderson t-shirt <laughs> is causing a lot of questions already answered by the t-shirt oh, no i feel like that's a very wes anderson we're yeah we're we're unironically <laughs> part of <laughs> Well, uh, now we have to describe this. Now we have to have a conversation about how we want to structure the rest of the podcast, and that will be the very Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's true. Storytelling. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jen okay. sent out a Google Doc three days ago about what we were going to talk about. Uh, it had a lot of confusing questions in it, and we were not prepared to answer them. Um, okay, so I think we're any. I think we've done a, we've done enough to. I'm going to say we've done enough to the listeners. Who have not seen this film already um so i'm gonna i'm gonna switch this into spoiler mode so if you have not seen asteroid city this is your off-ramp and again like that only makes sense that joke only makes sense if you've seen the movie uh go find and so i'm gonna keep going go find a nice rest stop with some pie and <laughs> strawberry milk maybe that'll get you to go see the movie that sounds pretty good to me uh and get back on the road with us once you've seen the film so i'm gonna count down from three and that any spoilers from here on out are your own responsibility. Three, two, one, and we're in spoiler mode. Um, yeah, I realize I always write these things that are like references to what we're talking about, and then I realize, well, if you haven't <laughs> seen seen it, that makes no sense. Um, but hopefully, you two Definitely. enjoyed it. <laughs> there are other references. Um, so we can kind of jump around in any order with a lot of the questions that I that kind of came up with for us to talk about. But I think the the quickest way, no pun intended, uh, to get us to digging into like what this movie is all about. We've referenced a lot obliquely about like, oh, there's a lot going on. It's dense. Like there's a, you know, there's a lot to understand. So let's let's just get into it. Um, so my question to you both of you is why did Augie burn his hand on the quickie griddle? Because I feel like that central question comes up more than once in the film. And I feel like is the again, the quickest route to trying to discuss like what what is the mm. meaning of this movie uh jen you weren't paying attention you can't wake up unless you fall asleep uh and that's why he burned his hand <laughs> on the griddle um 
I mean, it is, it is, uh, really, a, a you know, you've, you've struck through all the layers and that's one of those moments that kind of strikes across them, right? It's in some of the, uh, flashbacks and it's in, uh, the kind of contemporary presentation of the play and it's in the actual play itself. And so, um, that's kind of a, a nexus point between the layers. Um, you, you said elsewhere, um, you know, like what are the actual layers of this, um, film and that's like so such a tricky question which is is startling how tricky that is so i will just say because i'm one of those people who hears the spoiler warning and then keeps listening so if no if if somebody has continued listening and just wants a little kind of like lay of the land so the film begins as a television special that is presented by Brian Cranston, the host, uh, is his credited role, and he is presenting a television special that is the making of a fictitious play. And then they go through the action that happens to move the play from initial idea of the playwright to actual stage production. And then the central nesting doll is the the only part that's in color, I believe, of this. This is the actual uh this is the actual events that are the play themselves. And we shift, um, you know, that, as I just described, it sounds very much like Grand Budapest. Grand Budapest, you kind of zoom in through the layers and then you stay in the middle almost exclusively, not quite exclusively for the run of the film. And then you zoom back out. But um, this is not going to make it that easy for you. We're going to zoom in and out multiple times um, and kind of go go crazy at it. So the moment Jen is referencing here now to get with the question comes up as a question that the actor who is portraying Augie uh, asks the playwright uh, at the beginning of his audition to be in the play. It then freezes the action of the central nesting doll because the actor uses that question to question whether he ever understood this character at all. And it zooms out towards him having an epiphany about why he thinks Augie did it. And then he leaves it up to the audience essentially to decide any corrections to any of that before I give my guess. (laughs) No, I I think that's, I think that's all right. I, I will just note there's, there are, um, I think pointed flashes of color right, in the black right. and white sections. But that's so very uh, So detail. the actor says to the playwright that he thinks Augie put his hand on the grill so that he would understand why his heart was beating so fast. And the playwright, Edward Norton, says, um, that's a good line. Maybe that should be in there. That's my Western accent. It didn't work out well. Uh, and uh, then he said, no, no, it, it's not necessary. Um, and I think your question says maybe it is necessary. And then I think Jason Schwartzman, who has a character name that is then the actor portraying Augie, which I don't remember the actor name in the middle, um, seems to be debating this later that he never figured it out and that his whole performance is a sham because of that. So all of that, pre- that is some be- beautiful preamble. And if people were like, it can't be as complex as they're talking about. There you go. That was the preamble <laughs> to answering a seemingly si- uh, question. Uh, <laughs> See you, normies. I think that the character of Augie in the fictional reality. I'm just killing myself with this. In the fictional reality of uh, Asteroid City, I think Augie burned his hand on the griddle because he was in that moment 
desperate to feel something. And he had not yet in the film felt anything, despite the tragic and exciting and prideful moments of life he had experienced. So he finally just couldn't fathom the fact he wasn't feeling anything. So he stuck his hand on the griddle and got some beautiful uh, lightning bolt scars probably forever via Home Alone or Rages of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I just rewatched that scene like two days ago <laughs> from, from Raiders. That's, that's, that's a fresh memory. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's really good. And I think, the, I mean, the reason I wanted to start with this question is not to be obnoxious, but I feel like because that, like you said, that moment cuts across and really the, the open question, I'm not, and I don't ask the question implying that there has to be a definitive answer i'm with you that like i think the point is that we can't know the answer and that's kind of the whole point of the film but for me that was the thread that kind of helped make everything gel where i was like oh because like it it made the clear connection between why are we talking about the Mm. making of a play and then also talking about the content of the play right the story of them being trapped in asteroid city because there's an alien contact, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, so, so to me, the conversations that uh, around this question of why did Augie burn his hand really connected all of the, 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 the dimensions of the film to me, because it's this idea of like, we can't know, right. Even the playwright writing the play doesn't know why his character did something. Right. I think uh, the playwright's response played by Ed Norton is like, I, I just I was writing and it just he just did it. It happened. Right. Like almost as if it was out of his control. Right. Mm-hmm. And then so the, and then this question of like this actor is really trying to drill down of like what what makes Augie tick. He needs to he wants to know why he does every little thing that he does and that and how frustrating it is that sometimes we just don't know. Right. Some things you can't some some things you can't know. Some things you'll never know. And to me, that really. Connected with the sort of alien life what's our place in the universe part of the story in a way that i was like oh this all makes sense like i get why this is all happening in one movie now um so that's so i so i feel like yes it's like we don't really know why but it's more about the fact that we can't know why than debates about why he actually would have done it i think but but you're right like the most successful part of this film greg is i think the Mm. grief part right like if you ignore all the noise at the center of the story is a man trying to figure out how to grieve for his wife. Right. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of layers on which this works. Yeah. Um, my, I love every, all the stuff that both of you said, I think that you're both right. Sort of from a, like, you know, I don't think you're in competition with each other uh, on those answers. I think they work together. Well, um, my pithy addition to it is he did it because that's what it says mm. in the script. <laughs> And there's no, there's no other, but there's no other reason. He did. That's why the actor playing Augie did it. Both, because the the the, the character only does what's in the script because he's what's only in the character. script. Okay, right. And then the uh, the actor playing him is also only a character in the in the script of a movie. Um, and he is Jones Hall mm. is the name. Jones Hall oh, okay. is the yeah. name of Jason Schwartzman's act, character, who's an actor playing the character of Augie Steenbeck in the play and by extension, the movie. Um, right. So even the scene where he is auditioning to be in the play is an actor portraying an actor trying to get 
the part in the so the artifice is just you can't escape it and i think that's going to be the most alienating factor for a lot of people is that there's never any simple this character wants this thing there are so many layers so i i think pt is right it's it's a pithy truth it's like we have to be constantly aware that this is a fictional work being presented to us to interpret and yet not rewarding that interpretation in many ways. Uh, but then also it's like, is everything we do sort of just a fiction? Because as Jen was saying, we don't have the access to any sort of truth about our place in the universe or how we're going to die or our own mortality or our inter- our interactions with other people and what they think about stuff. Like everything's a mystery. Everything is just trying to muddle through a performance we don't really understand right and then like the kids this is your what you're saying reminds me the kids sitting around the table the main thing that they're scared of or concerned about is like well what what did he want with the asteroid why did he come here right the alien meaning mm-hmm. um not augie right. <laughs> uh in case that was confusing um but i feel like they're all and then i think they kind of cut the camera cuts to a bunch of the kids being like maybe he want like they have a bunch of theories right they're all speculating and theorizing as to like what the aliens motivations were and the their fear comes from the fact that nobody knows and that like it could be anything kind of you know what i mean like mm-hmm. they're just like well what and and they they're not sure if it was like if it's good or bad or how what their what their relationship with the aliens motivations and what they saw and what happened is and so mm-hmm. there's yeah to me like confronting uncertainty and fear of uncertainty was really like a huge theme that I really liked in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think Jeff Goldblum as an alien. <laughs> Delightful. We can talk about that uh, later. I don't, I don't play him as an alien. <laughs> I play him as a metaphor. <laughs> uh, he's, he's okay. a build actor and that's his one line across four seconds of screen time. Um, I, I agree with all the things that you're saying. And I think that in a way, like the fact that it's dealing with uncertainty you know, notably tied in with grief, but just also in general. Like I think then the that nesting doll artifice structure, the artifice becoming text, is intentionally unnerving and disorienting to try to throw off people to sort of grasp some of the uh, uncertainty. Um, that said, like I know Jasmine, my girlfriend, was just like she left the movie and was just like, I wish it didn't have all that stuff. I want I, the story like in the town was really good and i really like that and everything around it was like Mm. just unnecessary distraction and like kind of nonsense that like pulled away from just being able to focus on the story it's like so like her leaving was sort of like oh it's almost like he didn't Mm. trust that story enough and added a bunch of extra things to it in order to like I don't know, make it more interesting or, or make statements. And it was like, but what if you just did that movie? Like it could be really good. Um, which I don't think she's going to be alone in, in thinking that. Can you book her instead of PT next time, Jen? She sounds more insane. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, she will not blow out the microphone. She's got, she got better mic control I than I do. do. I completely am sympathetic to that because again, I think there's a segment of Wes Anderson fandom um, that, uh, loves moonrise kingdom in particular it kind of you know was a later hit that really grabbed a different crowd than some of us who had been hanging out since rushmore and royal tenenbaums and i think if you love moonrise kingdom then this is like 
uh, why are we doing all this, right? Because Moonrise Kingdom is just the central mm-hmm. narrative as a part of that. Um, the kids are really compelling, and it is a greatest his- hits of Wes Anderson to present kind of gifted kids. Max Fisher, who may be a sociopath, uh, the Tenenbaum children, and um, you know Eli Cash, who's desperate to be a Tenenbaum, a Tenenbaum children. There's kind of an Eli Cash uh, a parallel here, uh, a proxy. Um, I find the kids, though, really interesting this time around in a different way and, and certainly different than the Moonrise Kingdom kids who, you know, are precocious and kind of, you know, I always think of Dickens when you have the kids who are really adults just shrunk down. Um, and those kids are that, but they're not really mm-hmm. geniuses, I don't think, as, as presented. They're they're more troubled than that. Um, you know, the couple lines that click into what you were both saying is, you know, Woodrow is really troubled by the alien. And he says, what if he was the, he knows the meaning of the universe. What if there is one? And I think that presents like, yeah, these scientist kids don't think there's a meaning of the universe, right? It's not logical. It's not a part of that. And so they are like shocked that they could be that. Now, the other piece of that though, is the fact that the alien is more like them, I think, than anybody else. Because the alien came and took the asteroid and returns the asteroid with an imprinted uh, message on it that appears to be like a taxonomy, like they were just cataloging it to keep track of all of it. So it seems to me that the aliens themselves aren't holding the meaning of life. They themselves are just trying to explore. And the we haven't even mentioned Montana, the cowboy kind of points this out, right? He He's a kind of soothsayer in his role of like down home folksy wisdom and says like, you know, I expect he was here just in the spirit of exploration. And so we don't need to worry about him. And I think that's the correct reading of the alien when he's not a metaphor. Um, but all of that means that like the kids are at the heart of it. And so if the kids are approaching this with that set of questions, I think um, the key line then becomes Steve Carell saying, your children, they're not like normal people, are they? Um, And the parents are all like, oh, no, absolutely not. They're not. And I think that's right. The children (laughs) are not normal. And so they're actually facing these logical questions where everybody else, and I actually mean that like writ large to humanity, is inventing art to not ask those questions. And I think that's where the frame mm-hmm. makes sense. So I'm not going to offer a rebuttal to Jasmine. I respect her far too much. But my rebuttal would say that all of that would be becomes necessary when you imagine the fact that all of us are so terrified of those questions that instead we make the most elaborate art of all time. And so my final thought in this run will be that Jen, you also have the question down, like does this film have a thesis, which I think is really a good question to ask about this film. And if there's anything um, it's to me, it's when Midge Midge Campbell says to Augie Steenbeck, um, she says, uh, I think, I finally got a read on us. We're just two emotionally damaged people trying our best not to deal with it. That's paraphrased and it's not quite right. But I think that's, you know, Wes being very true about himself. Uh, and I can call him Wes. We're old friends. Uh, that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he is just an emotionally damaged person that instead of dealing with it is going to keep making art and trying to hide that. And all the pieces of the frame, in my mind at least, 
start to piece out how all of these people are deeply damaged and they are all going to not acknowledge that they're going to sweep that under the rug and instead throw themselves into their art, throw themselves into pretending that the world makes sense. Isn't that part of the, the scene with the playwright and the actor auditioning for Augie's role that we were talking about earlier? Isn't something he's like, I don't remember which one of them says it, but doesn't one of them say like, oh, I just assumed he put his hand on the griddle. Sorry to come back to this. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the griddle. Uh, doesn't he put his hand on the griddle because he he doesn't want to answer the question? Or so there's there's some kind of like, and I can't remember who says it and in what scene, but I think it's that scene. That sounds right um, to me. Uh, it, do you it remember? It does Greg? sound right to me, and it also um, resonates with the director and his wife. Uh, who appears for a long mm-hmm. so, Oh, yeah, yeah, And, and yeah. again, there's there's a good defense, right? Like these kind of thematic questions uh, kind of pop up in all the little pieces and kind of help us understand that, you know, the world of art and storytelling and creativity is just broken people trying to ignore the fact they're broken. <laughs> and, you know, I, speaking as not a creative person, because uh, I don't think I'm broken enough, um, but we'll, we'll get there. You, you'll break me eventually uh, and we'll get there. But uh, mm-hmm. it seems right to me. And it seems um, it seems like Wes Anderson is admitting a truth about himself that he hasn't admitted before. Um, but I could be wrong. No, I really like that reading. And I think it confirmed like what corroborates that I think is some of my favorite scenes in the frames, like in the black and white parts are the monologues of the actors. Like, like the, there are two that I can think of. One is the, the, from that, that audition scene where Augie, like the actor who play will play Augie later ends up kind of like delivering a really touching monologue. That's not that we never see in the central yeah. color mm-hmm. in color part of the story right um and it's really gripping and emotional in a way that the augie that we see in the color version right in the actual story never would like those are those are that's an emotional intelligence that he would never articulate to the other character like to scarlett johansson's character right um or to his kids or like right like those are things the thing and so what what and then the other one was the scene with margot robbie at the end where she's like, Oh, I got cut out of the play. <laughs> right. And, and she has this like, another, again, another grand, like really emotional monologue that really kind of like says things that are unspoken in the main story um, between the other, like that, like the characters clearly have an inability, like, especially to your point, Greg, of like them being two damaged people, right. Like that just are trying to figure things out together. They both have this inability to kind of express how they're really feeling um, to other people around them, right? Like to their children and to, you know, people in their lives. And so the idea that, that through a playwright's words, that's the only way we can actually get to any kind of emotional truth for somebody, especially someone who's grieving or something like that, I thought was like super interesting. And then like, yeah, again, like bridges the frame, just to me justifies the frames, right? Cause it's like, cause we, it seems very deliberate that we never get those types of monologues mm. in the color part of the, Right. At the risk of making this even more (laughs) esoteric than it already has been, um, I was thinking, uh, as one does, about the sort of Meisner versus Brecht that's present in the different frames uh, of this story, which uh, uh, I'll 
explain a little bit. I'm far from an expert, but the, the 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 black and white framing of sort of setting this up as this was a play from the mid 1950s, um, and all of the, uh, the 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 scenes of Edward Norton as the playwright um, kind of like felt like it was like a Tennessee Williams vibe. Uh, Ilya Kazan, uh, uh, Adrian Brody playing the director, sort of like Ilya Kazan, uh, and then the the actors are sort of like the the method acting school um, and the sort of, you know, like people who engage in the Meisner technique um, and and method acting. Um, like it really sort of traded on that sort of Brando, James Dean, Paul Newman, um, uh, a, a school of actors from that time. Um, and that that seemed to be what uh, he, uh, Wes Anderson is re- referencing uh, in those scenes. And as Jen was saying, sort of like the performances in the black and white when they, it's the actors talking about their parts or relaying sort of like, here's like my attempt feels very natural. I, I, I don't know if it's fair to go so far as to call it method acting, but it feels like this is a natural person uh, explaining things and, and, and saying these lines to show the true emotion inside them. Whereas the color v- version um, feels a lot like, uh, like like a, a Bertolt Brecht production where it's just like, this is all about artifice. It's about making sure that you know that you're not like here for any sort of uh, um, emotional catharsis. Um, you are just here to sort of see the the details being laid out by the playwright and and we are just presenting things to you. And I had never really thought about the Wes Anderson aesthetic as Brechtian um, until I sort of started being like, what's like, what's going on with the, the fifties acting like snippets um, that are being put in here. But it does like feel to me almost like it's like not Wes Anderson eating himself, but Wes Anderson, like folding over the like public Mm. perception of him and the sort of critiques of his work and just sort of being like, cool. Here's like the, the, the typical Wes Anderson, like color pops and and uh, you know layouts of where everyone is and the the those sort of, that sort of droll presentation of what's going on. But I'm also going to set up the frames behind the scenes of like what this story could be or what it could look like uh, if I wasn't doing that. While also, of course, playing off of what was what was theater and what was uh, entertainment, how were things being presented um, in different schools in the middle of the 20th century? That was way smarter than I can be uh, in terms of that. But I think that's right. I mean, I, I only know enough to also note that Willem Dafoe is the teacher in that classroom. And he is from a theatrical group that I believe ascribes to method acting. Is it the Worcester group? Woo- that, there's my Massachusetts. Yeah, the Worcester. That sounds right. Showing, uh, but Worcester. Worcester. Uh, so I, I think that is all correct. The other wrinkle I wanted to put in too is um, in the scene, the the audition scene. Um, he uh, it, the scene ends with him removing his pants and making out with Edward Norton, a very consensual makeout, right? He's like, you know, the, he asked permission essentially, and then they, they make out. And um, so I think that is at play as well too, that you have this way in which they discover the truth in the artifice by, you know, taking this character who, you know, if, if anybody has chemistry in this film, it's Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman and reminding you that this is not who that actor is and that you are 
you know, falling for it, essentially falling for the acting and, and uh, being a part of that story that is also just artifice. And then the, just to say artifice like 10 more times, but the other piece of it that I think we can't ignore too, is that in case you thought that Wes Anderson was like endorsing all of this, it's always flawed. And uh, PT's opening joke was this really weird moment where Brian Cranston just shows up in the innermost frame and is like, I'm not in this um, scene. And, and I think that's just a <laughs> reminder that not only is it that flawed people create art to try to find the truth, but it's never going to be fully successful, right? There's always, it's always going to fall a little bit short because of human fallibility or what have you. So your actor is going to walk out of the climax of the play and not actually complete it to the way it should be and so on. So um, I think that also, I mean, all of this just endorses the frames, which I I feel really good about. This is also making me think that, that moments like that are intentional to sort of say, life and art bleed together in way more than we would ever think or want to believe. Right. That like, and, and one thing I'm curious about on a rewatch, so I don't, and you don't have to have an answer to this, Greg at all, but like one thing I'm curious about, like when I read, watch this again, am I going to notice more things about the actors playing these characters and how what's happening in the black and white scenes is actually seeping into their performances and vice versa. You know what I mean? Like, Because I feel like this and that's, again, the thing that's going to make this movie confusing for a lot of people because it's back and forth and like it's hard to tell like, okay, like is Adrian Brody like my point of confusion for halfway through the movie was like, wait, Adrian Brody, is he playing a younger version of the playwright? No, wait, he's the director. Right. Like I had like I had to I had trouble keeping up with that at like halfway through the movie. And then I and then I figured it out. But like (laughs) but I feel like the that that very thing that makes this a a kind of challenging more challenging watch is part of the point right like and and i love that it's funny to to and i think this makes sense uh in in talking about this movie to go a little meta i remember when the poster came out uh and there was a whole cast list and it was a poster and then the trailer and people were like you know, watch the trailer and the trailer only has scenes from the mm. in color sort of, you know, story within a story within a story. Um, the main quote unquote main story. And people were like, look at all these actors that are not <laughs> anywhere in the trailer. You know, it's Willem Dafoe. It's Adrian Brody. It's Hong Chow. It's uh, Edward Norton. It's Jeff Goldblum. Like they must all be the aliens. <laughs> like there's just going to be like a pack of like six aliens. And like half of this movie is going to be aliens. And I don't know. I didn't know until going uh, until going to see the movie that there was going to be this degree of framing. Like with this sort of structure, maybe there was like later trailers. Maybe it was clearer um, in the way that uh, the movie was being marketed. But I feel like everything I saw kept it kept it secret that it was, you know, or you know, maybe there was like snippets of like, oh, there's something that's in black and white. Um, but I didn't I didn't know. It was going to be like that. The only, the only hint I had was in the, um, the screening I went to, which I, I once again, as I as I tend to do, saw it at the Alamo Drafthouse in downtown LA. And as I believe I've, has been discussed uh, in other episodes of this podcast, they do they curate a special sort of pre-show, like twenty or thirty minutes uh, of stuff. And for this one, it was trailers uh, or segments from you know Asteroid City, like inspiration. And it was usually um, it was like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
uh, it was Bad Day at Black Rock. Um, it was another movie I can't quite remember. That's like a you know fifties um, uh, tense, like we're out in the West uh, and stuff's going on. And then they like had a little window that was the opening and the first like like two or three minutes of a Playhouse ninety episode, which was like a TV. Um, anthology series in the 50s that was just like, we're going to do TV versions of plays. Um, and it was like the black and white like person like introducing like, and here it is, Playhouse 90, like with this cast and like listed the cast of the show. And then the play that started like began with a guy at a typewriter being like, and a kid comes in and he's like, I'm a playwright. And they're like, he's like, what is that like? And they're talking about it. And I had no concept that this was going to actually be related to uh, the movie to such a degree beyond like, oh, it's the mid fifties. Yeah, I get it. Um, so yeah, there's there's uh, there's something interesting about how well hidden the artifice was in the in the build up to the movie, and then suddenly there are these frames. Which, yeah, the more the more we're talking about it, the more uh, it's appealing to me. And this is also even more so than usual Wes Anderson movies. One I really I really do want to see again. I wasn't quite at Jen's level of like walking out and being like. I, I really want to see this right away. And I wasn't at Greg's level of having bought <laughs> sequential tickets. So I had to watch it again right away. But um, like, I was sort of just like, yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see um, how it all comes together now that I've seen the whole thing. Um, but now in talking about it, it's just like, I wish I could mm. put it on as soon as we're done and and watch it again. Um, the So a couple things to shout out from what you both just said. Number one, Hong Chow. It's just continues to be the greatest um it warmed my wee little wes anderson heart that adrian brody and hong chow in that scene look like grown-up max fisher and margaret yang um because hong chow's hair is done exactly like um uh margaret yang and that just made me so happy to think like oh they they got married eventually and then they got divorced because being married to a playwright is terrible (laughs) um uh it it totally worked for me uh within that um, uh, so I listened to a good interview with Brian Cranston where he talked about how he modeled his performance on Ted Koppel, that he sep- he sampled a lot of newsmen mm-hmm. from that era and kind of landed on Koppel as kind of dry and kind of just the facts as a presentation of that. And I think that helps in with some of what PT is saying, like it feels so realistic, like you've watched this before, even though you haven't watched this at all because it's all, all, all fake. Um, and again, I know this is a French dispatch positive podcast. Um, you know, French dispatch, each of the segments within the movie had a frame, right? The, uh, Tilda Swinton is giving a lecture about the events. Um, Jeffrey Wright is on a television program presenting what had happened. Um, mm-hmm. And within the Francis McDormand piece, there's a play she creates to, to tell that. And I think that's the start of this idea of we seek truth, but what we keep adding is layer on layer on layer. And here we just experience all the layers at once in this really confusing way that I think actually, you know, then you get to the the line that was already alluded to, which you would think the central truth of this is whatever the alien represents. And Jeff Goldblum is like, I play it as a metaphor. I don't really know of what yet. We haven't figured it out. I haven't landed on it. And um, I think that is 
a reminder from Wes Anderson and, and critics who have responded to say this is Wes Anderson parodying himself, I think are responding to that. He's like, yeah, I don't have a central truth for you jerks because this isn't how you should experience a central truth. You should be uh, seeking that elsewhere. So I think, um, you know, it does feel like a, you know, a, almost an elaborate prank in some way, right? Like if you come here looking for easy answers and I'm going to give you a saccharine message to like put on your next enamel pin, uh, cause you know, Wes Anderson fans don't have t-shirts. They have enamel pins. Uh, then, um, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're out of luck cause that's not what I'm about and that's not what I'm seeking. And it's, I, it, it makes me love it all the more. Right. You know, it's kind of like, uh, telling me I'm an asshole, but I'm like, I accept, I accept it. I am an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. I agree. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, so we've mentioned a bunch of times that the the, the cast and this is really vast. So did, did either of you have a favorite? We can group them together. I have them as two questions in our doc, but like character performance cameo, like what is a nugget in here that we haven't necessarily talked about that is a favorite of yours? I'm going to I mean, it, it's tough because like I think what you said earlier, um, which is like the, the grief component of the story is the most immediately successful one and is sort of the the clearest sort of anchor there's all this all the stuff we're saying that's kind of very intellectual and very kind of abstract and uh and conceptual but there is a core sort of grief um that is you know run through um uh, uh, the at least in terms of the adult actors, Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks, uh, and I think they all do an excellent job uh, portraying uh, portraying that, especially given the sort of artifice of it all. Um, so I'm going to, but I'm going to shout out two sort of like I guess more sideline um, uh, uh, characters. One of them is uh, Maya Hawk, who was the school teacher. Uh, uh, she's a school teacher of. A, a group of kids they seem to be coming from like some sort of christian school or there's a lot of praying um with their with their group but she brings like a bus full of kids to this uh junior stargazers convention and then uh you know her her main role seems to be trying to like maintain her astronomy lessons for the children even though they've all just seen an alien and they want to talk about that and so she there's just like i i really enjoyed her just being like Okay, I think some of this might be out of date, but uh, here's what I, I do know, what I know I know. And like, she's just trying to keep it together. And, and like, she's never shutting the kids down. She's always trying to answer their questions, but like, she's very clearly freaking out on the inside, uh, but is just trying to like keep it together. Um, and I really like that. And then it was already mentioned uh, in terms of cameos, um, but Margot Robbie has maybe the best scene in the movie when she gives her monologue. Um, from the from the balcony too. She's she's like in a production of another play that's supposed to be uh, in next door to the production of Asteroid City that's happening in black and white. And Jason Schwartzman goes off on the balcony for a smoke. They start talking about how like oh you were in this play and you were cut. And she runs through like what their scene would have been. And it's just like she mm. just does an amazing job. When the uh, the trailer revealed there was a dead I mean, wife um, and. Margot Robbie's name was there. I immediately was like, well, that has to be her. And they gave her one scene, like one flashback where she's going to talk. And so I was really worried in other words, and you're absolutely right. What they gave her was really good. And it reminded me, I, I've always like thought she was okay, but then I saw Babylon and I was like, I get it now. Like it was a flawed film, but I was like, 
that's what people see in Margot Robbie. Like she, she is really, you know, incredible in so many ways. And um, I thought about the criticism of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where it's like she didn't even get to talk that much. What is? And Margot Robbie finally came out. And she's like, "Hey, right here." I'm fine with this. Like I saw the script and I signed up for exactly this and I saw it wasn't that big a part, but I wanted to do it. So take your fake outrage away. And so I was kind of thinking like she would have answered that to me. Right. It's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like I'm, I, I'm Margot Robbie. I can do whatever I want right now in Hollywood. And I picked this. So uh cosign that, that her scene was, was really incredible. Only uh, adding that the fact that Matt Dillon's character at the end comes out and is clearly hitting on her is just genius, too, because it's like real genuine emotional connection. And then Matt Dillon wanders in to to try to score, which just made me laugh so hard. Um, uh, I think, you know, it is so hard to pick favorites in these. Um, the MVP for me from French Dispatch came back and killed it again, which is Jeffrey Wright. Um, I think the fact that I had never imagined Jeffrey Wright in a um, Wes Anderson. And then he was so phenomenal in French dispatch. I was really excited to see him again. I think I would say his part is a little smaller than I would have hoped, but he kills every single scene and they're all very different. And I, he gave a good interview to the empire podcast where he talked about um, he gives a speech and that basically he arrived on the plane at like dinner time, And Wes Anderson's like, we're going to do the speech tomorrow. And he's like, Oh, Oh no. And they did it a couple times. And Wes is like, yeah, I think we got it. Don't worry about it. And then two days later, Wes Anderson was like, you know, maybe we'll give you another crack at the speech. And then they did it once more. And that's the one that that is in the film. And it's really great. It's really bizarre. And it somehow engages in all these same things while being wholly centered in the frame narrative. I don't think we ever see him outside of the frame narrative. Um, And he uh, but is like encapsulating the whole thing about narrativizing our stories and, and so on. So so he'd be the cast member I would give. Um, my favorite uh, bit too. Uh, in terms of like a cameo, um, you know, I think I got to stick with Hong Chow. Uh, she only probably has a total of five or six lines, but um, I, you know, she was the only good thing in the whale and uh, was so phenomenal in the menu killed it on poker face. I just, if I could, uh, if I could take anybody's career right now and, you know, invest, I would buy all the Hong Chow stock I could, I could right now. And, um, you, you raised the point before about how, um, there's a monologue that, um, the actor auditioning for Augie gives that's not in the film. Um, in her scenes, she tells the director to make a change to Midge Campbell's dialogue. She says when she delivers her final line, she should be, off stage she should close the door and then deliver the line and then hong chow kind of brilliantly does this in her scene she closes the door and gives her final line uh and i give hong chow credit apparently in this case uh but uh it that is not at all in the film so she says when she makes her exit in scene in act three scene five and when you get to act three all the scenes are merged together but there's none of that dialogue scarlett johansson doesn't have it at all which again i think bleeds into that idea that the artifice is never going to be complete or be perfect it's it's always changing and and an approximation but uh uh, i don't know if it's fair to call hers a cameo but uh that that's my pick for a very very minor I was just yeah. grouping them all together because, yeah, they, they all have varying degrees of screen time and importance. And so, yeah, even even isolating some as cameos versus 
a guest performers or like a supporting role or something like that would be hard in some cases. Um, but I love all those picks. I just also want to shout out that Hong Chao and Adrian Brody look <laughs> so good in those scenes. <laughs> like, yeah, like it in a, in a very transporting way where I was like, I feel like I'm watching Marlon Brando and Streetcar mm. Named Desire, right? With the like the tight T-shirt and the and her hair is so perfect and like the the way that they're the just interacting with each other, I thought was too so reminiscent of the sound Adrian <laughs> Brody that? makes when he's pretending. There's a boxing yes. bag next to him, but he still just pretends. But he's going put it to put it to put it to put it. It's, yes. it's genius. He looks so good. Yeah, so good. It's great. I also want to put uh, do a little shout out to the cast member who who isn't or who wasn't. Um, because the hotel manager was supposed to be Bill Murray, um, but apparently he got COVID right before they were going to film. And so he's had to drop out because he didn't want to push himself. And so COVID slash got canceled. <laughs> uh, no, because oh, okay. it was months okay. before he got canceled. It was oh. the canceling. I mean, I mean, look, there's been sure. reasons to potentially cancel Bill Murray that have been in public record for many years. Uh, but his most recent... Uh, most recent bout of needing to lay low <laughs> for a little while till it all blows over um, happened like okay. uh, four good, or five good, months. Good after corollary. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to, and I was hoping that I wouldn't be the <laughs> one to have to do this. Um, I was hoping that they would come up naturally, but the, the, the triplets, uh, which if you listen to, uh, I don't remember what episode we were talking about this with P- I was talking about this with PT, um, but I, I have met the triplets. I know the triplets. They don't know who I am. I'm just like some random lady that that like was friends with their parents or whatever. That's right? how it is. Whenever um, I've met an actor too, I'm just some I'm just some guy. <laughs> um, but they, I, you know, the just to give some context, the screening that I went to was hosted by um, my husband's friend and also my friend. But he met we met through um, my husband's retro video game collecting and they invite us to a screening that they were having. They rented out a theater uh, and it was really cool because like they basically treated it like it was their own. They, they went to the actual premiere of Asteroid <laughs> city, but they, they were treating this sort of like it was their own premiere. So we were woefully underdressed and we showed up. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, but, but my point is that, that it could have been really awkward had mm. they been terrible in the movie, but they killed it. They crushed it. They really did. I thought they were so fun. And I just like, you know, they understood the assignment in a way that I was like astonished by where I was like, oh, like, you know, just that their like chaotic energy was so amazing. Um, and that, that I, you know, that every line that they had where they were like, I'm especially at the end where she's like, I'm an <laughs> alien witch or like an alien vampire, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is. That was so delightful. And like they played off uh, Tom Hanks super well. Um the the bit with the Tupperware at the end was incredible mm-hmm. and, and and very moving right in a way that you're like oh wow like the the tragedy of like oh they're just children and they're also trying to deal with this and process this right in the way that they know how which is apparently through ritual <laughs> ritualism <laughs> yeah. um, and incantations and like it, it's so good um, so yeah they were they were great my my only other sort of behind the scenes thing was that they had a really nice table set out at the front of the theater with like things that they got to take home from oh, cool. from the from production and oh, so they had two the two things i remember was they had the little little paper card that was like behind jeffrey wright's microphone or something like i f- i can't remember like what it was exactly but okay. it's like a little printout that's like asked like it says like the asteroid like it, it it's some label 
that appears in those like at the the speeches scenes mm-hmm. um and and then they had a, a script signed by wes anderson and it said to my favorite triplets and their mm. delightful parents uh <laughs> she didn't need to write um so that was really nice uh, but anyway that i just wanted to give them a shout out because i thought they did an excellent job and they really added a lot to the film it is it is a shame we have not mentioned them because they are real standouts and uh you had uh in the research for this episode you shared the oc registers article about them which calls them the standouts and i i do think they steal the scenes that they're in um are they is it too identical and then one fraternal i don't know if i have my triplet language right right but they're all they're Triplet. all triplets. Yeah. I don't. Because two looked very identical mm. to me. I was like, oh, she looks a little different than her two sisters. But but um, they nail the Wes Anderson dialogue and this kind of ability to speak over each other while saying really difficult things is good. Um, and I, I'll steal this I whole cloth from Amanda Dombins on the big picture. She pointed out that they are the, the witches from uh, Macbeth, right? And that they are here to speak truths mm-hmm. and to speak about kind of fate and, and so on in uh good ways that they need to hear. So the the moment the scene where Jason Schwartzman reveals to them that their mother has died, one of the three girls says, Are we orphans now? And he's so hurt by the question. He's like, he kind of like, how how would you think that? Like I'm still here. And you realize like they are orphans because this is a terrible dad who never checks in with them, right? You have Maya Hawk checking on the emotional health and well-being of her students every scene. And I don't think he ever talks to the triplets again in the film after that he reveals their mother has died. Um, and and also when he in that same scene says that, uh, but they don't really understand how long 15 minutes is. And one of them says 15 minutes is six trillion hours. And he's like, yeah, that's the point. Uh, and, and that's just so that's great. That's exactly my kids. They're like an hour till we leave. That's three days. And I'm like, no, like that's not how time works, idiots. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Not. Um, so they yep. they were yeah. excellent, uh, completely cosign. And um, I bet it was fun to kind of throw Tom Hanks around a little bit, and keep him on his toes. <laughs> well, and to go back to kind of the thematic stuff that we were talking about earlier, like they their role really seems to be to force. Augie and I'm not going to forget, remember Tom Hanks's character's name, but to force them to force the grownups mm. to confront their feelings, right? Because they like they're the ones who are holding the Tupperware hostage, literally, right? And so it's like they're like, no, like you can't just like divert your feelings and kind of like talk about something else. Like we like we are forcing you to kind of confront this reality mm-hmm. in a way that I thought was very powerful. That's yeah, that scene at the end, and then Tom Hanks is so sweet where he's like, he's like, fine, he's like, okay, fine, <laughs> like he just keeps. That no felt longer, real. Yeah, where yeah. I was like, yeah, whatever, it's fine, whatever you want, child. <laughs> I'm I'm tired of arguing with you. Um, felt very real to me. Um, I, I, I yeah. wonder if, and I'm I'm not going to dig too deep into it because I don't know if I can stand by it. But I wonder if there is a reading of sort of each generation or each sort of age group mm-hmm. and the way they react to the things around them. With like, yeah, the the youngest children, the triplets being like the youngest children, and they have this combination of just sort of like we need to do. Like we need to just confront the fact that that like, you know this my mom's in a Tupperware, but it's also like I'm a vampire, I'm a mm. witch. Is like this sort of like 
old school pagan traditional like mythology uh things that like they just have soaked in them uh and then like we were saying earlier like greg was saying earlier the the children uh sort of teenagers are the ones uh sort of trying to reason through things they're the ones who have a memory game where it's like you can say any name but that has to be real so it's sort of like a real versus not um dichotomy in their lives and they're trying to find the you know the answers um without thinking there are answers and then the adults are all trying to make like make something fictional i'm not trying to find what's real they're trying to make the art they're trying to tell the narratives and make the stories uh, and then you get up to the grandfather and it's tom hanks who's just sort of like i don't know i'll stay here i like <laughs> aliens whatever um i don't know but uh, yeah i don't like you but like my daughter did so i guess you're my family whatever like he just sort of like you know he's old enough to just take whatever it gives him and yeah he's like we're gonna put this by the golf course near my house and the kids are like no and he's like yeah all right i'm not gonna fight you um so there's you know i feel like there's something interesting about the arc of of age groups and how they react to things i i do think that is right and your reading of each of those age great groups you know yeah it, the temptations then to be like these are the millennials these are the boomers these are yeah but but it's I, it's not at all that simple um but it, i do think uh just you know so agreeing with that in that interpretation, but then I think this movie, again, throws a curve on it. It is really interesting that the little girls are always a very specific identity that is not their own. So they are also creating art, but not in the like, I don't know what the metaphor is about. It's no, I'm an alien or I'm a part time witch or I'm a witch in training. Uh, one's a vampire at one point and they even do spells and so on. So um, and it, that it reminds me in the in the scene with the alien when the alien arrives, they're wearing their costumes in that moment. So they're not even they're experiencing everything through a filter, too. And it's like. Isn't that just what the adults are doing, but not as like straightforward? Like they, they're all pretending to be a role. And, and there's a, a shout out later when the actor is questioning whether he got Augie right. The director's like, well, I've told you before, the pipe and the accent and the beard and the eyebrows, it's all just unnecessary, right? And and I think that is like the same as the witch hat and the ogre mask and all that. So it's like, yeah. And, and so it's always both right it's always the these people are all different yet they're all the same and that's a great tension to try to create and remind us all is truth damn it damn it wes i love you so much you're you're <laughs> reminding i know you're reminding me that there's the little kid who writes the song yes they're all the creating song. Art God, the song too. yes the song all, so all the kids around the table right yeah right yeah um so yeah that's a, i love this you're both of you are helping me understand this so and appreciate this like so much more and in a way that I knew and hoped I would. So this is awesome. But then the question is, is all of this too intellectual? Like to be a successful movie, is this is this too much like thinky think, like like uh, theory uh, instead of just like? I mean, I think we're the we're we're probably the mm. wrong crowd to answer that question, honestly. <laughs> Because I think right. like that's part of the appeal of this to us, or at least I should speak just speak for myself. Like for me, the idea that there is so much intellectually to dig into and to puzzle out, like is what makes it fun for me to watch and to think about and talk about. So, so I don't like I don't know if I'm if I have a, like if I can objectively answer that question. Um, but that might be a good segue at the risk of like cutting out some of the other stuff that was on our list. Um, we can always go back if we want to, but I think this is actually a good segue into the rhetorical situation 
which I feel like needs a theme song or something. We'll have to work on that. I don't know. Um, I'm not the one to make that, but uh, we, we got to get that kid <laughs> from the movie <laughs> to write us a theme song. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in general, if this is your first time listening to the show when we've done this, you know, all three of us are educators. We all have background in in writing and, and rhetoric and composition. Uh, and so rhetorical situation is is basically refers to any outside factors or contextual variables that can influence composing and interpretation, right? So like this is kind of our section to call out any connections that we see academically kind of to things that from our from our teaching life, from our academic and research lives, whatever the case may be. And the, the reason that this is a segue to the section from what we were just talking about, I think, is this question of is it necess- is, is all the framing and all the artifice necessary or is it like obscuring the story if you could, if you want to call it that is that making the film unclear and not accessible um because i think oftentimes in my teaching life i'm trying to get students to to be clearer and more cogent, right. in what they're writing to be like, no, just like drill it down to what you actually mean. Right. Like don't put all this other fluff in there. Right. Um, but here, obviously we're, we're praising the addition of lots of layers and, and, and the density of it. And, and in, in a lot of ways, the lack of a clear thesis, right. We're kind of like, that's a positive in this context. And so I'm curious what you both think in terms of like, cause I, and I've also heard other critics, this is sort of what the, what the, if people like the film, it's because they like the layers, the narrative frames, and the, they like the, the the messiness of it and kind of the stickiness and, and how dense and complicated it is. And then other people are like, this is overwrought, right? Like this is this is Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson too much. Um, and, and like what like you're yearning for the the days of like kind of the the more strip streamlined sort of simpler but still profound films, right. Of his filmography. And so like what, yeah, I'm just curious what both of you think about that. (laughs) We, we both don't want to answer. So we defer to the other. Uh, Yeah. uh, It's, it's a really interesting question, you know, and just to simplify what you just said, the piece of writing I give the majority of the time to my first year students is see this paragraph, this last sentence, start there, delete the rest and and develop that. Cause I think there is a way in which mm-hmm. we try to dispense with preamble and building up to a point and say, just make the point and then develop it uh, straightforward in a way as a part of that. Um, but I primarily teach um, expository writing, not creative writing. And so to me, that is the key difference, right? The smiley mask, frowny mask of of composition is actually like exposition and just trying to inform or argue versus actually trying to tell a story and trying to create an experience. I'm going to falter into like gross, touchy-feely language in some ways. But I, I do think that, you know, this film does not have a thesis necessarily, but wants to offer a meditation. And to me, that's what art is about in a way. The point of good uh, creative rhetoric is just to, well, we we simplified it in our opening as just present vibes, right? Like, let's just vibe for a while and ask some questions and not worry about answering them. And here, that's what the goal is. So I think the rhetoric supports that. Um And then because it's always both and, I will also say that I do think that there's a more 
subtle way to parse some of this by, you know, when we think about rhetorical situation as the way we teach and as scholars, um, sometimes this gets read as intent versus impact, right? What is the author intent versus what do people actually take from it? And another way that that operates is what went into the making of this and then what is the context in which it enters, right? Um, and this is text context, depending on you know your school of critical thinking, I guess, primarily. Um, and so it, all of that is to say, it's really interesting to me that this film arrives at a moment when Wes Anderson parodies that are garbage have taken over all of social media. If I see one more bookstore or cafe or retail shop, put up one of these things, which is like somebody waving from the middle distance. And they're like, stop pretending you're Wes Anderson in our bookstore. I'm like, that's not Wes Anderson. What are you doing? So, uh, so I'm going to sharpen my own axes as a part of that. But why I think that is an interesting ripple on what you just said is there's no way Wes Anderson is responding to that. Yet this film is a perfect response to that because it's like, oh, you think you can do me? This is how I do me. And there's no way they can compete with this level of obfuscation and complexity, right? There's no TikTok that can do what we just watched over these, you know, it's actually not even two hours. I think it's like an hour 40. Um, and, and so I think there's a way in which while that couldn't have been Wes Anderson's intention that is absolutely the impact it has to me. It's like all of these teenagers who think they're oh so clever are just as stupid as you think they are, right? And there's my elitism versus normie talk coming back. So, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I agree with you and all of that, and on both of you doing a very good job of establishing sort of what the rhetorical uh, situation is and and ways of thinking about it. And it is interesting to sort of try to talk about it from the perspective of. This is a work of creative, uh, 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 creative art as opposed to like a, a argumentative essay of some sort, something expository. Um, but uh, you know, I think in terms of thinking about um, the the sort of like situation, the rhetorical situation, I don't think uh, I, I think Greg is correct. Um, uh, I agree with Greg in saying that I don't think Wes Anderson thought for one second, has ever thought for one second in his life about any AI Wes Anderson uh, uh, parodies or like, yeah, people on TikTok being like, oh, this is what, like, do this movie, do the do your routine, but make it Wes Anderson. Um, like, he doesn't care about that. I don't even know if he cares about reviewers and critics uh, at any sort of a high level who have been like, okay, here's the, you're kind of just stuck in your own shtick. Um, but I do think that the sort of there is something that is uh, a little self-referential or self-analyzing just in him thinking about his own work um, and thinking about how he what his instincts are and uh, and what that may mean and and what that's you know sort of uh, um, you know how that comes I think that's something that comes through in in the movie uh, again maybe there's something you know I've seen some sort of critics saying um, this is you know Wes, Wes Anderson is either. Um, totally buying into his own press or has never read a critique of his work in his life and so is completely blinded to what people think about him. Um, you know, and I, I don't think he's on either extreme, but I don't think he cares about that. I think he most just cares about his own sense of storytelling. Um, and I'll note here, because I think that uh, I, I had thrown it in while we were talking in the earlier question section, but I think it makes sense to talk about here. It's just like he has talked about how, you know, this is his 
COVID-19 pandemic movie. Like this is, he was in stuck in quarantine. That's why there's a plot point in the movie after the alien shows up, all the characters are, are put in quarantine in, uh, in Asteroid City. And that's, uh, you know, the, to the degree there is a passage of time in the, uh, uh, in the, in the play within a play. Um, or the movie within the movie. Uh, it's that, you know, it's, there's a week that goes by where they're stuck in quarantine. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I thought it was interesting in terms of, you know, one of the things that, that I feel like has been happening. And I think Jen and I have talked about this before on the podcast, but I'm not hundred percent certain. Um, uh, cause, because we also talk off the podcast, like, <laughs> like idiots and, and good nuggets Content go Content is more important um, than friendship. But, uh, I'm telling you, stop it. <laughs> sure, we gotta, we gotta, I'm so dumb for going to her birthday party. Record the birthday um, party. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, belated. Uh, but the uh, that you know there's there's been a thing in in uh, movies and TV shows uh, where uh, you can sometimes really tell when they were making it under COVID protocols and like it feels very much like people are isolated or like they're they're sort of blue screened into places where it's like why were like you know all due respect to Ted Lasso but it's sort of like why are you being blue screened into like the stadium where you've clearly filmed a bunch of scenes and it's probably because of the COVID protocols of like they, they, they were, you know, they, they can control the filming environment. Well, I mean, part of it is that this is how Wes Anderson does stuff, but it's like Wes Anderson, like wrote a movie around just like, it takes place in like half of a block in the middle of nowhere um, on what's clearly a set, but can be a, a contained enclosed environment. Um, and the artifice of it is that like, it can be on a back lot, uh, somewhere that is fully contained and controlled. Um, and then the framing devices are on a stage uh, somewhere uh, or, you know, yeah, everything takes place on a, on a stage with sets. So, um, you know, there is this sort of both sort of within the movie itself and also the sort of successful production of the movie exists within the context of COVID. And I think like is, is, successful on both levels in terms of wrestling with with that that context in which it was created i yeah i totally agree and i think the second i realized they were in quarantine in the movie i was like Mm. oh and i'm like well but at the same time i feel like this film can be a product of the experience of the pandemic but also not necessarily about that you know what i mean i think like the thing that to me seems like a stronger connection is again to go back to what I was saying earlier about the the fear of uncertainty and how things are unknowable, right? Because like you know, thinking back to the early days of the pandemic, like no one knew how long it would be, no one knew what was going on, no one knew if there were ever if we like if or when, like you know, even if there would be a vaccine, never mind when, right? So like, and I think the the panic that we and it's very smart. I also think to like to t- to pl- set this the main story of asteroid city in the atomic age, because there was also that kind of like on the one hand innovation and technology, but also like panic and the cold war. And like, are we all going to die by a nuclear bomb? <laughs> right. And so like, I think the the parallel there is really nice in terms of like the thing that connects all of those things is this idea of like, we don't know what's happening and that's scaring us. Right. And so to me, like the, the panic of the characters where they're like, I think, I think it's one of the, stargazers moms is like well how long can they legally mm-hmm. hold us in here <laughs> right? that feels like i feel like i heard somebody say that during <laughs> lockdown right <laughs> during the pandemic so um so yeah i think i think yeah it's interesting to think about this as the product of covid but i i don't 
I like it less when it's like a neat and tidy metaphor for COVID. You know what I mean? Yeah, I will. I will say I don't think it is sort of like an alien with COVID, um, uh, because as discussed, the alien is a metaphor, but we don't know what, you know, what it is. Uh, but I, I did find a quote um, from an interview with Wes Anderson from a couple months ago, where he talked about like how the fact that he wrote it during uh, during the sort of COVID era, uh, and he said, uh, "I don't think there would be a quarantine in the story if we weren't experiencing it. It wasn't deliberate. Writing is the most improvisational part of the whole process. It relies mm. on having nothing." Uh, which, I mean, it's, on the one hand, speaks to sort of like, yeah, it isn't like you know he's not trying to claim like, and this whole thing is about the COVID experience, but just that like that element of the story came into it. Um, I also think, and I don't know if this falls under the rhetorical situation uh, banner, um, but that is such an interesting for someone who is so uh, meticulous and so sort of controlled in terms of like structuring the frame, structuring the image um, and, and you know, sort of clockwork uh, um, building of all the different pieces. Um, that kind of idea of how he approaches the writing of a screenplay is just sort of like, it's, it's all improvisational and like you start with nothing and you just deal with nothing and then it just kind of happens around you, which like doesn't sound a hundred percent different from what Edward Norton's character says of just like, it just kind of happens. Like that's what he did um, while I was writing it. Like, is it possible that that's, you know, not dissimilar? Is, is he as much Wes Anderson as he is Owen Wilson to harken back to the screenwriters of, uh, of the, the, the first few Wes Anderson movies. Um, well, and I just want to, I think, again, that uh, masterfully demonstrates context, right? Like this is, it matters that it came out of uh, the COVID era. And I think that it is, to my mind, one of the more successful examples of this. I think there was that first wave where it'd be like, this is Zoe Kravitz alone in a, an apartment. You'll never guess why, uh, right? And those, those movies. And then, um, you know, I'm obviously very much in the Ryan Johnson camp and glass onion kind of was one of the first that was like, yeah, the COVID uh, pandemic is happening and we're going to have fun with that just to acknowledge that that's what's going on. But uh, to, to synthesize your two points, how putting it in the atomic age also gives you this sense. I mean, it's, it's number one shots fired at Oppenheimer. It's like your movies in the background of my movie. Like, don't even bother showing up to Oppenheimer because uh, it's, it's in the background of mine. Um, but then um I think what stood out to me on repeat viewing, and I'll keep, uh, you know, bragging, uh, is that the trains, right? So we start and the soundtrack, uh, which is available on Spotify and surprisingly long, uh, can really help you remember this. But the opening song is a song called Last Train to San Fernando, which has this lyric in it that if you miss this one, there'll never be another one. Bitty, bitty, bum, bum. And that's kind of the sentiment that starts as you're seeing this like train rocketing through the landscape. And the train has just been described as moving five miles an hour. And there's no way it's moving there. And the train is full of all these consumer goods. It's almonds, it's avocados, it's Pontiacs, it's a nuclear bomb. And so it's like literally the train of progress, the train of the modern world. And so then when we enter into quarantine, all of that just drops away. And that very much to me means it's not just like we were all in quarantine. It's like, we had this chance to actually face everything and to think about it because this life is moving. And it, if you miss this one, you're not going to get another one. And so then, um, and and you have the cop car chasing the bandit through the town uh, at that part of the movie too, with no real explanation, but a reminder that the world is just moving that speed. 
And the the last uh, the kind of as the credits roll song is freight train freight train move so fast as the characters take off again and re-enter this world. It's just that reminder, like yes, and 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 then again, you uh, you can't wake up unless you fall asleep, right? And they had fallen asleep in the quarantine, so so it all resonates across. So to me, that's why the context is so good, and it's not just a lame quarantine movie with five people in a soundstage somewhere. It's it's kind of built all around that, and a reminder uh, the, of of the ways in which that works. Um, if you stay past the Roadrunner puppet. Uh, dancing to Freight Train, which definitely worth sitting through. Then there's a Jarvis Cocker song, Cocker, Crocker, uh, uh, who appears in the film, um, I believe did a song for Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. The first three couplets are, uh, you, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't fall in love if you don't take the leap you can't smell the roses um uh, unless you plant the seeds and so all three of those lyrics it's like it's almost like all right you stayed till the credits if you really want a thesis if you really want a message like here's what we've been talking about here's part of what i'm gonna kind of tip my hand to show you um uh and then i think they maybe refrain um the alien song but i don't remember (laughs) So we do want to transition into our Oscars watch. Wes Anderson has not had a great track record considering how well-respected or kind of notable a filmmaker he is. He's been nominated seven times, right? Which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at, but he has never won. He's not yet won an Oscar. So what's the deal with that? Should we be all angry about that? And is Asteroid City likely to change that record at all? Do you think? Yes and no. (laughs) respectively, is my response to those two questions. Um, uh, Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess no one should ever really get mad about the Oscars because they don't particularly matter, but it is wild. He's never won. Um, uh, uh, Frankly, and I don't want to give away anything uh, from uh, our future rankings discussion, um, it it always shocks me when I remember uh, that Rushmore wasn't even nominated for anything. Uh, Because I always think of it as like, oh yeah, Bill Murray should have gotten Best Supporting Actor that year um but uh it wasn't he wasn't even in the i mean i think he might have been in the discussion he got an indie spirit award um but it was never really a a thing there uh it really feels like he the wes would be a prime candidate for a best original screenplay somewhere along the way because that's sort of where the academy seems to reward like yeah this person they're really good we don't know what to do with them so here you go, like in the sort of Quentin Tarantino mold of like, here's here's your here's your Oscar, um, which which gets to that like when it starts to be the 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 point the time when uh, it it would it would feel like oh like he's due it's time it's like Moonrise Kingdom he's nominated and he loses to Quentin Tarantino for Django Unchained, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel the only movie of his to win any Oscars. Sidebar insane. He hasn't gotten a bunch of production design um, uh, and and uh, art direction uh, awards, but whatever, he got them for that movie. Um, that's Birdman year. And so the, the Birdman screenplay wins because that's on the march, um, which, I mean, I would give it to Grand Budapest, uh, but whatever. Um, and, uh, and then even when I was like, well, why? he couldn't even win Best Animated for Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, and he lost to Up. 
so you know that's 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 not that's not a bad beat i mean it's a bad beat uh it's not a bad choice um but you know it, it's tough when you're going up against them um but uh but yeah you know i just i don't know because of all the things we said earlier about how like the the it's very wes anderson-y and it is this sort of you know ornate like uh, globe of mirrors that you're looking in to figure out like what's happening in it and what it all means um you know it's sort of like if they weren't already giving them oscars like why are they going to do it for the like most west anderson movie um that's come out I can't disagree with any of that, much to my chagrin. I am still sore that French Dispatch got goose egg. That was my absolute favorite film of that year. And I, you know, I always think of Sean Fennessy over on Big Picture who like hated it and then watched it a second time and was like, oh, this is kind of genius. And I, I feel like a lot of people did that where they wrote it off. It's like a weird New Yorker tribute. I don't care about this. And then it really has so much more to say as a part of that. So, um, Shocking. Um, every, I, everything PT just said. I, I mean, especially to me, Fantastic Mr. Fox is like the one where people are like, I hate Wes Anderson, but that one is pretty fun. And so it surprises me. He also, um, you know, I went on the letterbox journey through all that he has directed. He's directed a lot of shorts. And I'm like, why weren't these shorts nominated? You know, mm-hmm. um, especially something like Hotel Chevalier for uh, the, the preamble to Darjeeling Limited. It's like, you know, that seems to have been well seen by all this, but it just reminds me that for the people who hate the Oscars and say like they only reward the kind of incestuous, everybody's kind of artsy weirdo esoteric choice. It's like then Wes Anderson should have all the Oscars and, and doesn't have any, which, which is a real shame. Uh, but my first thought walking out is I don't think this is the one. Um, I think Grand Budapest stands out in my mind as the one he performed the best with at the Academy. And I think that was purely because it was kind of a World War II film and the the emotions it played with. Um, you know, he tributes those to Stefan Zweig, who was writing about the kind of lost Europe from before the war. And um, that's all really like easy to tap into and it's just award bait. Um, I think French Dispatch didn't have any of that. And so people kind of ignored it. Um, I would love to say the big cast here would like help it out in the actors branch, but um, I don't think there's a single performance that stands out from the pack enough to really grab one. If I had to put my money on best chance, I might say Scarlett Johansson, if it's a really soft year for best actress, which I don't think people are saying it would be. Which so I don't, think it will be, yeah. uh, I, I don't think this is the one uh, to break through any of those. Um, and, you know, Tom Hanks isn't in, in need of a like career one. That would be the other path, right? If he grabs one of these like actors who really deserves one, but it's it's not Tom Hanks. Bob Ballard. Well, I, I was wondering when you said that, I was wondering, is it like, is there, ever, is there going to be, I don't know if there would be a drumbeat of like, maybe Tom Hanks needs a third <laughs> to like put him in the, pantheon in the same way that i think there's going to be some Mm. talk about that for de niro for killers of the flower moon of like what what but what if what if he like two's not enough um you know we've been so content for so long with both of them having the awards they've got that it's like maybe we're you know maybe we as the academy should be uh thinking differently but yeah i just that would be the only sort of momentum i could see maybe screenplay again uh or maybe production design um, you know, I don't think it's, uh, it's likely, but 
um, you know, there, there's a possibility there. But I think as as Greg was saying, it's sort of like if things were light, then maybe you could get in. But it's sort of like 2021 was light because that was post-COVID and French Dispatch still got shut out. Justice for Jeffrey Wright's uh, nomination that should have happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm agreeing. I co-sign all of what you just said. Both of you just said to me, the most bonkers thing is the lack of production design nominations. Like it's just because I feel like regardless of how you felt, feel about the films themselves, you know, looking at French dispatch, looking at this film, even going further back, you know, grand Budapest got three, it got the most nominations. It got best picture director and screenplay, but it didn't Mm -hmm. get production design. And it's just like, what are we doing? I don't, like, because if you don't like the movie, it's hard to deny how meticulous and how unique and just vibrant all of the sets and costumes in these movies are. And so that that's the thing that I don't understand why, like, what what kind of vendetta, you know, the designers guild have against Wes Anderson or something like that. But but yeah, I I agree with you that I don't think this is really going to make much of an Oscars splash. It could just to add to what you already said, because I agree, like it's like screenplays makes the most sense if it's going to happen. But I do think it could be one of those ones like a triangle of sadness, like a women talking that gets kind of like a token best picture mm. nomination. Mm. You know what I mean? To be like, well, like we don't know what's going on with this movie, but like something's happening. So like, we'll give it a best picture nomination. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I could see Academy voters or whoever's making the nominations like feel like they should nominate it without really understanding why <laughs> or something like that you know um again that's that's the elitist narrative coming through but um oh i know this is bad <laughs> this is not a good look for us how <laughs> is a podcast um but and then i and then i'm picturing antonio listening to this later being like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh so he yeah we're, we're all part of the same problem um I, I will say I, I think that the the path to a, a that like it's the ninth or tenth best picture nomination is a a bunch at least a handful of presumed contenders yeah. are just that's fair uh, and come out and lose all steam people don't like it or that's really divisive um, and you get to that point which has happened I think well, you know the last couple of years where it's just sort of like you're approaching nomination time and it's just like, we got seven movies that we know are going to be in. And then it's like, we've got 10 movies for the last three spots. This could very easily be the like, yeah. Like I think women talking is a good, a good potential comparison of just kind of like, yeah, I remember this, like everyone, everyone kind of liked it. Like, I don't know. It came out. It was a thing. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that is at the time felt like, yeah, it's not, it's not happening, but it, it, you know, it, the, the bar was lowered. That feels really mean. Uh, but the bar was lowered um, in terms of how excited people were, um, which gives it another shot of people uh, looking at it again. One other potential is we don't have a kind of blockbuster that seems to fill into the 10 yet. We probably aren't getting a transcendent Marvel movie in the realm of a Black Panther uh, this this year, unless the Marvels is just totally different than literally everybody says it is. Um and I can't see them nominating something like Mission Impossible colon no Mission colon Impossible comma Dead Reckoning period part one uh, that just doesn't seem to fit with the way the Academy works. So um, so maybe if this does bonkers uh, business, which I think the per screen average has been really high. Uh, I believe last weekend 
it made more money in a day than any Wes Anderson movie had ever made in a day. So it is ahead of his other movies in some ways, but it's a steep road to get to even what Grand Budapest did for business, let alone what usually it takes to get a popular slot. Um, the only other piece on that is I believe last I had seen the Rotten Tomatoes audience score was about 50%. Like it, this is not a beloved uh, film. So I don't think it really would get that slot or it's a tough road to to get there. If, if that's the way, maybe the smart money might be more towards Barbie for that slot. Again, if it does gangbusters or Oppenheimer, I think you're right. All right. <laughs> Sad face. <laughs> Wish there were more Oscars love for Wes Anderson. Cause then the question is like, at what point if we, at what point are we going, would we give him an Oscar? Which and the, if the answer is never, then that's really sad. I feel like retroactively anyway. two thousand and one <laughs> for the Royal Tenenbaums, or uh, when he and makes the Academy his makes an announcement. Hey, don't spoil the next part. <laughs> when he does the revealing self uh, study of the influences that created him, we'll give him a bunch of nominations. But but I, I will I will just note I was like, well, who won that year? It was uh, Julian Fellows for Gosford Park. You know, again, bad beat. Like that's not you, you can't be mad at that win. It's not like he's just he's always up against it's funny because I mean we got the it's the Anderson duo. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson has the same problem. Like it keeps being like he's never winning. And you know, maybe not every time, but a lot of times it's just sort of like, okay, you understand in isolation, but then somehow it's twenty twenty three and neither of them have gotten any accolades. Yep. Directly. All right. So we're gonna end here with for me at least was a very difficult exercise because i love basically all the wes anderson films that i've ever seen i love so or like you know enjoy and would say they're good movies so what we're gonna do is share our top five i think is what we landed on if everyone's cool with that right two more down yeah Great. no i didn't know where we landed <laughs> okay okay um there was yeah we were talking about three or five i think we landed on five and we're going to go from the bottom up. So it's like a slow reveal of our top choices. And so I think what we're going to do is if you will go around and like, let's say you say you're number five, but someone else has it higher. We can do the house of R kind of thing of just vaguely saying like, I have that higher on my list. We'll talk about like, you know, and then, but you can still say why you chose it. And we'll just acknowledge that it's on someone else's list. Does that sound yeah. good? Sure. Okay. Um, so let's go. You, no, I think you should go first. Greg, then. well, no, okay. I think we'll go you, PT you first. Because, to us. What? Yeah. Yeah, you should I never first. go first. I never get to. Well, I'm. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So <laughs> my number five, and, and just, to, well, maybe I'll say this later. I, I wanted to give some context as to like the, the struggle that I had making my list, but I think that might be better later. Uh, uh, I, number. I have honorable mentions. I'm, I'm planning okay. on saying honorable right, 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 mentions right. at number five. So just be, that's, if that, if that gives you permission, okay. I want you to know that. That sounds good. Um, my number five is the French Dispatch. I think I wanted to have it somewhere on this list because I feel like it's a, it's a highly underappreciated film. And for all the stuff that we were talking about today of like having lots of layers to parse and like, I think that's all in the French Dispatch as well. It's just a little bit more segmented in the three parts. Um, 
and and you know i love i love the playing with the frames like i love all the things that we've been talking about and i think the fresh the french dispatch walked so asteroid city could run in a lot of ways um so that's why almost, almost the opposite the french dispatch leisurely strolled so the asteroid city could like <laughs> uh teeter on a thought yes. of maybe moving or something like <laughs> <laughs> right. the, the french dispatch smoked a long cigarette <laughs> So that, yeah. so that Asteroid City could could um, the, barrel down a railway. The, yeah, the French dispatch uh, rode a motorcycle through a revolution. So uh, Asteroid City could ride a five <laughs> miles per hour train uh, across the desert. Uh, um, so my, uh, all right, well, the Jen was good. So I'm not going to say my honorable mentions. I will just note that there were three movies I was trying to decide between. I will say one of them. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable ranking Asteroid mm. City. I almost put it at five. Uh, I considered putting it here at five. Um, but I've only seen it once. It's too fresh. It's not fair. There's another movie that was like going in and out of the slot. But I also put The French Dispatch at number five because I was like, it's got to be, I, I got to have it on here. Um, and I will admit I have not rewatched it since seeing it in the theater um, but I loved it and I thought it was great and it felt, uh, uh, yeah, it just, it, it felt like that sort of, you know, speaking again to sort of Wes Anderson's like inclination to short films, it was these sort of three short films, the interconnected, uh, nature of it. I loved the sort of the, that like literary magazine, uh, New Yorker Atlantic type, um, uh, uh connective tissue, um, and yeah, I had a great time with it. So go go French Dispatch. Boo to all the haters out there. I will reserve comment on the French Dispatch uh, and say, uh, <laughs> so it was really interesting to me as I constructed this list. It was like one, two, three, I got immediately. Four, I was good on. And then five, I found like I'd hit this like broad middle where I knew the ones that sit at the bottom. Sorry, Isle of Dogs. Sorry, Darjeeling Limited. Those are pretty low for me. Uh, but I was like, oh, I, I don't actually know how I want to go in the broad middle. So uh, I'm going to go with uh, Life Aquatic. Um, this would be infamous in my household as the movie I dragged my probably girlfriend, now wife too. I'm not exactly. Yeah, probably it was old enough now at this point. And that was the one where she's like, yeah, I'm done with Wes Anderson. Like this is really long and really boring. And uh, she has tried other sense, but that was the one where she was like, I think Wes Anderson is your thing, not our thing. But, um, you know, I, uh, so I don't know. I'll sneak in my honorable mention here, a classic smuggle to say I was stuck between this and fantastic. Mr. Fox, I would say when I was a teenager, uh, life aquatic was higher. And then I didn't really love fantastic. Mr. Fox. Uh, and then as I've rewatched that one with my kids, especially, and kind of seen how terrible most kids entertainment is, I'm like, this is really fun. And it, you know, it's not necessarily just for kids. Sorry, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, but it it works on a level that they enjoy. <laughs> they were cracking up at the way they dig. And when they get in a fight and it's just like a cloud, my son thought that was the funniest thing. And um, <laughs> and yet, you know, there's all these extra layers on it. Um, and I'll leave it there. It was really tough for me to decide between those two. But um, I, th I think uh, both are worthy of being in the top five, even if one of them is technically six since, since <laughs> oh go ahead jen 
I have both mm. of those higher on my list. So we, nice. I will be saying more about them later. <clears throat> well, since, since we're here, I would say the movie I was wrestling with, it's, like I almost put Life Aquatic instead of French Dispatch. That And that like in the sort of just like, well, what's the movie I've loved longer is obviously Life Aquatic because it's been out longer. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm with you, although clearly we have, it's different movies. Um, like I have, like I had a clear top three with a, a, a very obvious number four, like slightly under that. And then it was just sort of like, okay, five to what, seven or eight is is a, is kind of a muddle here. But Life Aquatic and, and is And I, I also did think, well, if the Asteroid City is good, I could totally see it here at number five. I'm not sure I'm there yet. And like you said, it's not really fair to rank it yet, but could be. Could be someday it's in just that a, range. Right. Yeah. That's a good segue to my number hey. four because it's Asteroid City. <laughs> yes. I did it. Oh. And like, you know, again, to, to, to give some, some context to my rationale is I, I kind of knew what both I, I had ideas about what both of you would pick and I tried to mm-hmm. zag instead of zig. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, I think I've only seen this movie once I'm putting it my number four. I really loved it. Um, maybe I'm biased because. Because I know people connected to the film, I have to acknowledge that. But I'd like to think that even so. So again, like I think purposely, French Dispatch at number five and Asteroid City at number four to me is because they're on a continuum in terms of like evolution mm. of of type the type of film. Um, and and again, why if you hated French Dispatch, you're probably not gonna. There's probably gonna be too much in Asteroid City that you don't like, right? Um, and and I just feel like. You know, maybe if the more I, the more I rewatch this, I'll reevaluate it. But I really feel like the more I watch this, the more I'm going to appreciate it, and the more layers I'm going to see, the more connections I'm going to see. Because even just from talking to you two today, I'm already no like thinking about more, and so I feel like that's it's just going to keep growing on me. So I'm I'm pretty happy putting that at my number four. I love it. I, I will just note that I have seen, I mean, random anonymous people online, but I've seen random anonymous people online who are like, I really liked Asteroid City after <laughs> hating the French Dispatch, which feels very weird to me. I mean, A, because why would you ever hate the French Dispatch? It's wonderful. But B, they do feel pretty like of a piece. It's not surprising one kind of float into the other. Um, but that's great. I love that call, Jen. That, that's good. Um and uh yeah the, the, again as Greg was saying it is a bug-eyed claymation <laughs> alien like what it does so even if you don't care about all of the stuff we've been talking about for like two hours like come on there's 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 pure and and the kid who keeps daring everybody like there's this movie is hilarious Steve Carell's uh, land gag. Um, like yeah yeah the there's a lot of fun stuff in here. There are multiple times. It's because one time it's Steve Carell, the other times it's Scarlett Johansson's character's bodyguard. Are there just characters like lurk in the <laughs> side of the frame and then disappear? And like it, it's so funny. And like it, it played, it played in our theater. Like people really laughed. Um, my number four uh, is um, previously mm-hmm. mentioned, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, I think it is. Uh, it's just, it's so charming. It's so well done. Uh, it was, uh, it, you know, there's there's a degree to which maybe the, the if there are people who are like, I mean, I didn't personally didn't care that much for Isle of Dogs, unfortunately. Um, but the people who didn't like Isle of Dogs and then didn't like French Dispatch who were like, uh, you know, Wes Anderson, where did he go? That's kind of where I was after Darjeeling Limited. I was a little bit like, ah. Uh, I don't know, like, you know, Life Aquatic, I really enjoy. I got why people push back on it. Um, 
and uh, and then Darling Darjeeling was it was its own thing. Um, and so this could be something was like, oh, like you know, Wes Anderson isn't fading away; like he's back and he's back so strong. And that like his his filmmaking approach and his storytelling uh, approach and his aesthetic set to stop motion forest creatures voiced by incredibly famous people um was uh was perfect it was a great marriage uh and yeah it's it, that, that was again like out definitely outside my top three but once once we went from three to five i was like well that's clearly the next best one for me that's the one i like the most nice. after those three also the way uh, they yeah. eat <laughs> we can up it like, yeah it's so good the, the wolf just the yeah. wolf that lurks off in the distance um, great. I will just throw in that my co-host on my uh, Wheel of Time podcast, Through the Glass Columns, available wherever you get fine podcasts, uh, hates Wes Anderson, and we tease each other relentlessly about these opinions, but he will only stomach Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I think that's a, like, you know, he hates how constructed and twee everything is, but in the context of an animated movie, it it works and can win some of these haters over, so... So his Wes Anderson rankings are one, Fantastic Mr. Fox, two, everything else I mean, he'll never see Asteroid City. Uh, When he heard I'd been twice by the time I'd (laughs) seen him on Friday, he was like, I am just, I don't understand your life. Uh, So we'll we'll work through it. Um, (laughs) You know, any good podcast host eventually go to couples therapy together. So... (laughs) Um, all right. So good list making, like Jen said, you know what other people are going to do and you try to zag and you gotta, you gotta have one hot take, one bold. And this one's mine, which would really disappoint high school. Greg coming in only at number four is Rushmore very low. And I was surprised. Uh, and I will say it's, you know, it's still holds a very special place in my heart. I think this is a film that, taught me to be somebody who cared about film right and taught me that it doesn't just have to be simple storytelling there's more to what you can do here um and i do still love it i mean to be in the top half of my favorite director's movies means it's it's still a very good movie uh but i will say as i've rewatched it over time it feels like an early film to me um a little bit in script sorry i know these are hot takes uh and a lot in like the production and it's just you know he didn't have the budget yet i mean bottle rocket is is great for you know one of those i made it on my credit card or i guess on's credit card mm-hmm. uh but i made it on somebody's credit card and uh it's one of those movies that's great but i think to me if i'm thinking about what really stands up um freshmore is up there and is a great great film uh i also uh think uh well i'll save back some of that but i, I will just say uh we'll always love uh miss cross uh uh as the standout character i mean it's been really fun staying with uh J- jason schwartzman over all these years and to see the disaffected teenager now be the disaffected dad uh but it is it is nice that uh you know sometimes people pass through uh and don't stay so sorry that's number 4 i bet i bet you're going to reserve comment on it <laughs> Take take dead aim on the top of the of the list. Get him in the crosshairs. Take well, him down. To go to go back to something to follow up on something you said. I didn't have a chance to rewatch anything for in preparation for this, but I did go through and watch the trailer in chronological trailers for all the films in chronological order, and it really is crazy how the early and jarring. Like I was like taken aback where I was like, oh right, and I've actually I have to admit I've never the one I have not seen is Bottle Rocket, but like. 
you know, those early films, even Royal Tenenbaums to a certain degree where I'm like, oh, wait, like we didn't always do the dollhouse thing. We didn't always have Mm -hmm. the like crazy production design, like, and, and yet they still feel like Wes Anderson movies. And I think that's really fun, right? That like, that you can sort of, and again, that's the sign of a great filmmaker that somehow doesn't have any Oscars, uh, that like, that you can sort of, that they are, they're storytelling is so identifiable regardless of type of story or context or whatever right so i think that was the one thing i noticed and and so rushmore definitely is in that where it's like i feel like i heard one critic say like it's amazing to see that he's able to create these worlds without the elaborate Mm. budget and production and and all the bells and whistles that he he obviously i also just have to note still the best wes anderson soundtrack by so far so good. and uh yeah really great all right so my number three and i had between two and three i had the order i had a lot of trouble with but my number three is for fantastic mr fox i almost wanted to put it number two but this film was just delightful and I, you know as a big proponent of animation i was like i gotta have this on here somewhere and i, I went back actually this is the one i, st- I started to rewatch it and it i felt right back in love with it again i'm like it's it's peak george clooney because <laughs> it's basically oceans 11 but with animals <laughs> like and and his like his like like the little clicky thing he does like the everything it's so good and and then like his son i had forgotten how like mm. ornery the son is <laughs> and angsty mm-hmm. it's so good um and that's jason's yep. that's jason schwarzman too okay. um so yeah, I let it and yeah, and it's like it has all the whimsy and the magic of like a good Ardman film, but is so Wes Anderson and like yeah, there's so much I love. There's yeah, there's so much I love about this film. It's so good. So I'm I'm glad it's like the ambassador film for people who are not into yeah. Wes Anderson because I feel yeah. like you know. I think that makes sense. It, it's it's a it's a welcome mat of a, a of a way to lead people into the wider world. Um, I did not try to zag. I guess I thought my French dispatch would be a zag, but then I knew it wouldn't <laughs> be a zag with this crew. Um, but I still, I still did it. Um, so my number three is the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, which is the late era. I, I mean, I don't want to say peak. It's obviously in terms of awards. That's the only one that like has garnered a lot of attention. Um, but I think there's a reason for that. I think that as Jen was saying, the sort of dollhouse, uh, uh, like intense, uh, uh, aesthetic approach um, of of his movies, I think, really hit a peak there. Uh, I think it 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 makes sense that I mean, his next movie was Isle of Dogs, which someday I'll go back to. But I remember just feeling like it was not very successful. Um, but you know that his next live action movies were The French Dispatch and Asteroid City, which are self uh, uh, analyzing deconstructions of it because Grand Budapest was so clearly the success um, of the dollhouse approach. Um, but then, you know, again, another nesting narrative, um, the, the, the sort of subtle ways of playing sort of the, the, the light frivolity of the main characters, but then the real sort of evil sinister stuff happening in the background and on the margins. Um, Ray Fine turns in an uh, impeccable performance um, uh, as I mean, really, I feel like everyone does. I feel like that was the first, this is the first Jeff Goldblum, I think. And maybe I'm wrong. Is he in life aquatic? Uh, um, yeah, I'm not yes, sure. Yes, he's that. The I said that. I really was. He's the oh, he's... Or... Okay. Oh, that's okay. Right. Um, 
Well, go, but Goldblum's incredible in uh, uh, in Grand Budapest. Uh, Tola Swinton as the two characters, um, Tony Rivoli as uh, our lobby boy. Um, I, you know, it's it's uh, yeah. I don't know. It's it's excellent. I feel like um, if they're you know, this is not the reason to put it uh, in a ranking anywhere, but I feel like if if there was someone that was like, well, I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox and I liked that, I would you know potentially be like mm-hmm. okay the next movie you might want to try is grand budapest and that's the one that i think would would maybe resonate with people um so yeah that's my number three uh i'll reserve comment uh so uh my number three and i'm going to again attempt a visual bit on this look at my letterbox all-time most watch that is french dispatch coming in at 15 wow. times as my top uh, film watched ever on Letterboxd, which I believe is a definition of mental illness because it's only been out like two years. Uh, So I, I really, I walked out of French Dispatch saying Wes Anderson nailed it. This is his masterpiece. This is his opus. Everybody's going to love this. And then was heartbroken that really nobody, nobody did. Um, You know, and I think in our longer discussion of Asteroid City, we, we shared a lot of what we think about this. Um, It gets no better for me. I mean, on any day, I will talk about the praise, the praise, each of the three sections, but the Jeffrey Wright one with his incredible choreographed walk and talk is just miraculous that what we're seeing. Um, And then that the fact that that builds to a New Yorker motion cartoon of the chase, uh, including the Jeroboam who, when he leapt off the car at the end, my theater was like on its feet, screaming and shouting and clapping. I think I went to a Boston independent film festival screening of this, which maybe explains some of that. Um, but I, I love all the segments of this. I uh, cannot stop watching this movie. I, I, I really just uh, can't get enough of it. So I'm going to put that at, at number three. Um, kind of breaking my rule because a lot of this is uh, on my list is uh, kind of centered around um, a kind of one and done Wes Anderson cast member. Um, and I would have put Jeffrey Wright in that camp, but Jeffrey Wright came back now, which I'm I'm glad for, but also would have respected if that was a a one and done. I guess Benicio del Toro is a one and done in the mix, so mm-hmm. uh, but I would not put his performance at the center of that film. Um, really, it's I mean it's barely verbal. <laughs> I saw some clickbait article that was like Wes Anderson says his next film will have Benicio del Toro in every no. frame. Did anyone see this? No, but Wait, let's is- do it. Okay, I can't. And it was a genre. Is it, is of, it like it's like a network bug? He'll put on the <laughs> on the like the lower right. It'll just be like a little. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, this oh, this uh, fall, Benicio can't make a living, so he opens Del Toro Tacos. Uh, and it's just him going like, <laughs> "Hey." <laughs> so and it's an it's an espionage is this movie. The next feature length film, or because the mystery. Second Wes Anderson movie is now confirmed so. to be a short film coming to Netflix this fall. So. Short. Yeah. Right. right. That's the Benedict Cumberbatch one. So. Sorry, the other headline is Wes Anderson hasn't seen your TikToks <laughs> and he doesn't want to. So good for him. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, should I don't we know. know. This, this should have been in my movie news. I don't know because I feel like I just saw mm. this today. 
but I I will certainly defend French Dispatch to anyone. Um, some common criticism is that the three pieces don't work together. They absolutely work together and resonate across each other. And um, uh, another one and done is Elizabeth Olsen in like the smallest of roles, but needs to come back uh, to to Wes Anderson. So there's there's a few in there, but it is mostly his regular players. I mean, you'd also get, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Francis McDormand and uh, Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet. Yes, but McDormand's in Moonrise Kingdom. I mean, of you course. should leave the podcast now. I got to um, see Moonrise Kingdom. Walk away. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're taking back. All right. the West I got to get out of here. Just walk. <laughs> I was going to walk into the ocean, <laughs> but it's like a paper ocean that's like moving back and forth because so it's not really going to hurt me. Yeah. All number right. two. Is it me again? Yes. Okay. Number two. Again, this might be another zag. I purposely did this. My number two is Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Yes. (laughs) And it may not objectively hold up as like the best. Because like my big struggle with this was like, do I put together a list that represents what I love most about Wes Anderson? Or do I try to come up with like what objectively, quote unquote, from a critic's point of view, like are the best ones? And I thought the second option was boring potentially for for this exercise so i was like you know life aquatic might be flawed compared to other films that we've been talking about but this is i think the film where i fell Mm. in love with wes anderson and specifically the sense of humor that a lot of Mm -hmm. his films have and because i feel like to me the like just the premise of an ocean explorer like taking himself so seriously and yet being so terrible at what he does. And then suddenly having like this like adult son thing, like come into his life. Like just the whole thing is hilarious. And Willem Dafoe, when he looks so hurt <laughs> that, that, that's that Steve Zissou is picking his, like this other, this other guy who is his son who just shows up. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like, and he's like, thanks a lot. Like, just like, it's just, it's, it's, it's magical. I laugh every time. And the little the little red hats and the the I don't know the the sea creatures and the and yeah everything is great. So even though it's probably not the among the best, it, did it they has my heart. ever release the Adidas? That's what I was thinking about this last watch through. I'm like, oh, I really wish oh. I had, I'm not a sneaker guy, but I was like, I would kill for some Zisu Adidas. But that would I be feel like great. this predated sneakers as like a collectible thing. You know what I mean? Like, or like as a, this is pre Yeezys. Yeah. This movie. So, right? I think so. I'm only now realizing the burn mark that uh, Jason Schwartzman gets from touching the hot plate is essentially the mm. Zizu team logo. Zigzag. Yeah. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm only now thinking that, but it is. It's like three Zs on That's top amazing. of the also- so again, I did a rewatch leading up to Asteroid City, and um, I had not ever appreciated the joke, this genius joke, where the submarine on the 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 boat is named Jacqueline, his ex wife, and it's crossed out and called Deep Search, and then he has the matching tattoo that he crossed out Jacqueline, so he has a tattoo to a <laughs> submarine on his arm. That's just so good. Uh, my 
my feeling about Life Aquatic, which again almost made my top five, and and you know on another day easily could have, uh, is it, it also really kind of depends on how much you are vibing with mm-hmm. that era of Bill Murray, the sort of like mid two thousands and on, and you know, market he's almost certainly a, a bad guy, um, and he's and he's uh, is uh, he's. Uh, uh, on the record, we know he's a, uh, a intentionally difficult person to like live with and be around. Um, maybe he's worse than that. We don't know. Um, but he's also hilarious. And I think that he's hilarious in this movie. And uh, it's, it's, it's so rooted in like the, 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 the humor of the movie, even though so many other people are really funny, it's really rooted in how much you enjoy watching Bill, like Rye, late middle age, early old, early senior Bill Murray, just like react to things around him. And I think it works well. I think it's great. Um, so uh, again, there's no, there's no zagging in this, in this, in this corner of the podcast. Uh, my, maybe this is a zag. I don't know. Um, I don't think it is. My number two is the Royal Tenenbaums, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, I, I have it at number two for the reasons that Jen was saying of like, isn't what are we ultimately doing here? I think we're ultimately ranking our, our favorites in like an objective uh, breakdown. It's World Ten of Bombs versus Grand Budapest for like Wes's like pinnacle, I think. Um, uh, all due respect to the French Dispatch, okay. Greg, which I know you just said was his masterpiece. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I respect the heck out of that. Um, but I love the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, I, uh, the, what, what Greg was saying earlier about how, uh, you know, it's really, it's really the first three, I mean, Life Aquatic is also when I think a lot of the sort of Wes Anderson control uh, 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 or, or, you know, uh, approach maybe was really getting uh, super prominent. Um, they do feel a little bit looser. They feel more like, you know, a regular person's movies, but the construction of this family the uh, all the different uh, uh, players that are there, the way that they all interact, um, the the moments when things get like super serious or or uh, dramatic, um, uh, you know, work really well uh, in a way that uh, you know I don't know if he really again Grand Budapest does have the sort of serious things on the side. I don't know if like something very serious happening to the characters and the characters having to like confront that has been as front and center in a Wes Anderson movie again until Asteroid City. Um, maybe, maybe that's not true. And maybe I can't stand by that, but um, that's, that's what, what it sort of feels like. Um, and uh, if for no other reason, uh, the Eli cash line about uh, what we know about General Custer, <laughs> we all know General Custer died um, at the Battle of Bull Run. What this book presupposes is maybe he didn't, um, is uh, one of those lines that runs through my head at least once a day. And I quote it out loud probably at least once every other day. Um, so, uh, yeah, full credit to The Royal Tenenbaums. Just a movie I love. I will reserve comment. Uh, so uh, I uh, this is my number two is Grand Budapest. Uh, and um, I just think that I didn't know how good Rafe Fiennes was going to be with Wes Anderson, and it is absolutely a bravura performance. Should have been nominated. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, the acting nominations not ever happening, but it's such a rich performance, and um, just like the 
the you know the when we first meet lobby boy and they walk across um the lobby and i noticed this time it's a it's a one long take and all these people pop in and it's guest employee guest employee and he switches demeanor to the two sides, but then responds to each one, each employee in a very different tone within that. So you see that he's like orchestrating this at a level you can't believe. And, you know, I'm interested to know why he hasn't come back to Wes Anderson um, because he was so good. Um, but also it seems to be maybe a guy who doesn't like small parts or so that's, that's a hypothesis. Um, but uh, I love that. I love um, the frame narratives. This made me read a lot of uh, Stefan Zweig and opened me up to his writing, which is really incredible. He wrote a memoir um, just essentially about what um, Prague was like before the war. And, you know, it's written shortly after mm-hmm. or surely, sorry, surely before he commits suicide in Argentina in exile from World War Two. And it's just this like really beautiful elegiac piece. And so I think, you know, there there's always a little bit of framing Alec Baldwin in Royal Tenenbaums and such, but uh, the curtain in Rushmore. But this to me is uh, it was a real advancement of that. And I think it was it, it was really disorienting the first time I saw where you go the girl at the grave and then the television special and then Jude Law, which forget he's in this uh, Jude Law. And That's then right. or sorry. Yeah, Jude Law and F. Murray Abraham, and then all the way back to to the actual. Um, and it's just mm-hmm. wonderful. I just will shout out the production design of um, the way the hotel looks in the 80s or so with the like fallen Soviet uh, kind of style uh, republic. It's so mm-hmm. well done and just gives you that real sense of how fallen the world is and how terrible that is. Um uh, and I don't quote Eli Cash every day, but I do often think about Ray Fiennes on the train saying, um, you know, some miserable uh, scrap of humanity left in this world. Uh, and uh, and then, of course, the last turn of a, oh, well, I won't say it because I don't want Jen to get an explicit rating. But he, the curse is just so well placed at the end of that. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> the the only thing I was going to, yeah, what I was going to say, uh, it, that which piggybacks off that is the little ways in which his inner rage would will just pop mm. out in expletives um, when he's saying something like, you know, he's, he has those different attitudes to different people, but then every once in a while, it'll just really like just boil over inside him. Um, and then he'll like con- contain himself and pull it back is just, it's so funny, but it's also like so uh, yeah. adroitly handled both at the, you know, at the, the, the filmmaking and the, the, and the very similar to that. The moment he uh, is talking to lobby boy is zero in, in prison and he has a black eye and he says, it's because if we have learned anything from the petty dreadfuls is you find the biggest guy in here and show him you're not a candy ass. And it's like, it's so discordant with this like prim and proper guy. It's like he reads the petty dreadfuls <laughs> and doesn't want to be a candy ass. Like you got it. Like it's, it's, it is a really good point. And, and, that might be where I think the writing is the sharpest, um, but it, it does deserve yeah. the performance deserves a lot of credit too. You're right. The marriage of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the combination of like the toughness and the elegance of that character is what's so magical, right? Because he, cause doesn't he also at the, the, the reading of the will, doesn't he make some crazy comment 
to Adrian Brody's character and they basically he like comes yeah, swinging yeah. at him. Right. Like, um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, so, so this is a great segue to my number one. Mm. My number one is Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, nice. I feel like it's as close to a perfect movie as mm. a lot of movies get. And it has everything. Like it's got, there's a murder mystery. There's like this, like James Bond esque <laughs> chase. There's like, it's, it's a war film. And it's like we're you were just talking about like it, and it has the sort of the funny and the serious and the the sort of whimsy that I really love about Wes Anderson. Like the thing I always remember is just the the finery of the bakery box. Like when they mm-hmm. introduce um, Susha Ronan's character, like it, like all of that is just so gorgeous and and so it it. This is the one film that I think. Wes Anderson does the best at building a complete world unto itself. You know what I mean? Because, like, you know, Asteroid City, also, you could argue, like, as a location, right, like, is its own little world. But I don't feel necessarily transported into another world in the way that I do with Grand Budapest Hotel, Mm -hmm. if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, So... So, yeah, that's why that's why it's my number one. And yeah, like and and then also adding on everything that both of you just said. Saoirse Ronan, too. Just a shout out. Another like not in a lot of these, but or Mm -hmm. in two, but very, very, very small. But yes, she's in she's in two of them. Small roles. She's got to She's got to come back. He's got to do one movie with everybody, (laughs) like absolutely everybody who's still alive that he worked with. Um. Well, my uh, my number one is Rushmore, a movie that Greg Cass hates, and uh, it's it's I I think there's a, there is a degree to which we're 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 carving out a little bit the very minor mm. age gaps in between yeah. each of us because I um you know I don't want to I don't want to reveal what I believe uh, Greg's movie is going to be, but I know that Jen's uh, uh, you know. Uh, you know, the honest great Budapest point, she said Life Aquatic was her first exposure. Um, I went to go, I went to see Rushmore. At, it was one of those things where it was like, it was a bunch of people. We were on a trip. It was spring break. I was in college and we were just sort of like, we're going to the movies. We're not going to see a movie. Like we're going to the movies. And like, I mean, there was, a, there was like 10 or 11 of us. And the vast majority wanted to go see Cruel <laughs> Intentions, uh, a movie that I... Have heard is fine. Some people still love. And then a few of us were just like, what about this movie Rushmore that looks really weird that's got Bill Murray in it? Like, what if we do that? And I was like completely enraptured in uh, everything about it. I expected nothing. I didn't know anything uh, going into it. Um, and the just the the, the voice um, and uh, everything Greg said earlier about it being rough around the edges and feeling like an early movie, like, in some ways, the first movie like Bottle Rocket exists, but that is a sort of, I think, hyper indie um, uh, uh, movie. Um, and I'll shout out Bottle Rocket, a movie I've always wanted to love more than I do. Uh, I have friends who Bottle Rocket's the clear number one and everything else comes after, um, which is wild, but good for them. Um, and But, you know, like there's that. And then Rushmore is the first, like some degree of, of he's got support um, uh, around him. And, and it is rough. Um, it's, it's, uh, his aesthetic is not fully there, but 
man, I don't know. It's just it's just carved out a little place in my heart, um, and I can't let it go. Everything I said about Bill Murray and Life Aquatic, maybe more so in in Rushmore, Herman Bloom is uh, just a, yeah a character I love. Max Fisher um also uh a character i love uh and i mean all mm. of them seymour cassell as uh as the dad um just just comes in and throws throwing you know painting painting the black throwing heaters uh over uh over the plate um it's uh it's incredible and uh, i was uh, further reminded of how much i love it um, to one, once again bring you back to my Alamo Drafthouse experience, one of the pre-show things they showed was from the MTV oh, Movie Awards in 1999. Um, but and the Max Fisher players performance of Armageddon, where they had Wes Anderson and and the cast uh, recreate um, the, the the nominees for the MTV Movie Awards, and it's just like yeah, like the apocalypse, the apocalypse now um, version, and all the stuff they're doing. Uh, it just it really it really connected with me uh, at that uh, at that time, and uh, it's just going to be my number one probably always. I'll never let it go. Despite, I feel like um, we need to make friends with whoever curates these mm. preview shows for the Alamo Dress House. We got to get them sound, on. They sound awesome. We have to get them on the podcast, and I have to get you to come up. Like I have to like get you to take like a two, an hour and a half train ride so I could pick you up at Union Station <laughs> so we can go to a movie so you can experience it. And then it's I'll just turned into off. that. Uh, I feel like that would basically that just turned involve... into the SNL Californian skit for a second there. <laughs> yes, it did. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd be taking the, tra- the, the, the train, yeah, not yeah, the yeah. five or the four or five, right? Yeah. Um, but surely you would be taking the ten or something, right? Like that's. Or we would take we would take surface streets <laughs> to get from Union Station. It's right nearby. Don't worry about it. We would be. We'd be um, I just listened to a whole bunch of podcasts about Asteroid City, and I'm going to forget which critic said, but one of the critics pointed at the moment in Rushmore where Bill Murray and uh, Castle uh, talk to each other. They greet each other. And he says, like, you're a surgeon. He's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm a barber. But a lot of people make that mistake. And the way that, like, everything crystallizes for Bloom in that moment, in this, like, brilliant bit of writing and another brilliant little bit of performance, like... Bloom suddenly understands that Max has been lying, why he's been lying, how vulnerable this little kid is. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just like everything happens in that moment. Never mind that you have these two great actors engaging on screen that are kind of different generations of the same type of actor and so on. It's, it's really nice. So. I, I I also I, I've read the same or listened to the same podcast because they called it yeah. like a hangdog yeah. Olympics of uh, uh, of of Murray and Cassell and that is yeah that is really true just just like lines the random lines that Bill Murray will drop like when he goes I'm a little bit lonely these days um, like it's it's just it's it's perfection and uh, the for some reason the thing that I I remember fixating on at the time and I do still think about it is when he's talking on the he's he makes a phone call i forget if he calls max or he's calling the his teach max's teacher but he's by the school and he's yeah. looking at the teacher um and he's kind of look and then he's continuing on the phone and he keeps the phone call going and there's a kid just playing basketball by himself and the kid goes up for a <laughs> shot and he runs over and just like knocks the ball away and like doesn't like stop the conversation and then just keeps walking that at the time was the funniest thing i've ever seen in my life uh, and I stand by. It's so uh, really fun. Also, it's correct to say the headmaster is on succession, right? Isn't that 
Brian Cox. Yes. Yes. yes Brian I couldn't Cox. think of his name, but like, yeah. it's like incredible that, yeah. you know, had a much later kind of surge on that show. Uh, okay. At risk mm-hmm. of turning this into a three hour podcast, I will just say uh, my number one is Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> yes. It's, it's in many ways the basic pick, but I stand by it. It's uh, absolutely my favorite. Um, I will say I saw it in the theater last December um, at the Coolidge, uh, which will mean something to the two of you and anybody mm-hmm. related to Boston area, but a great independent movie theater here in town. Uh, the 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 director of programming got up and introduced it as Eli Cash with the weird four wheeler dirt bike art behind him, and did the whole speech and um, wow. just nailed it. And then it was clear like half the crowd got it, and he was really disappointed. He's like was sure it was going to be like standing ovation. <laughs> people throwing their undergarments at him and like it, it kind of didn't work. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, again, I think famously Gene Hackman and Wes Anderson did not get along, but this, um, I'm, I'm not the right age for Gene Hackman. Like I've seen the conversation, I've seen the French connection and they, I'm not going to like demean those movies. They're great. But like this to me is the best Gene Hackman. And it's really just this wonderful, like gem again, because so many people repeat that we have this really over the top performance. Um, and this is another one that I glean a little more from every time um, I watch it and appreciate a, a little bit more um, the kind of sad moment of, um, you know, uh, Ben Stiller, uh, another one timer saying, um, you know, it's been a rough year. Dad uh, is just heartbreaking every time I watch it. And, um, you know, really uh, mm-hmm. works. I think, um, you know, I, I PT is right. We're discovering our, our when we discovered West generation mapping here. And I'm sure, uh, you know, most guys my age who saw this as nerdy teenagers are in love with uh, Margot Tenenbaum, not Gwyneth Paltrow, but Margot Tenenbaum specifically, I think it just imprinted <laughs> on the, the psyches of all of us. Um, and, you know, I, I think the moment that like there are times where I rewatch this and I get a little lost in the middle. It gets really dark as, as you alluded to. Um, but the moment they are all at the, uh, the cemetery and Royal has now passed spoiler alert. Uh, sure. Uh, where uh, at, at the very mm-hmm. end, in... <laughs> if someone's still listening, I don't, think you, uh, you see this, the right. tombstone, which, you know, the joke was set up before that his tombstone reads, died heroically saving his family from a burning battleship and like you know when i was a teenager (laughs) it like was one of the first times it clicked to me like oh it's a lie because he was jealous of the other people's but then you're like oh shit he was right he was he is he did save them all from the burning battleship of their lives and you know that kind of only the like <laughs> revelation that only a teenager can have that everybody gets as text, but you're like, this is the deepest symbol I've ever discovered. And so um, it will always be, you know, uh, these films we've mentioned wrestling for the top of mind, and this will completely change in two days time or so on. But um, at least for now, I'm, I'm sticking with Royal Tenant Moms at the top. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say any of my top three could realistically be my number one. Like that's, uh, you know, I, I went with the pure sentimentality of, uh, uh, of the, the first one I, I saw and fell in love with, but, um, yeah, it could be any of those. I just got, sorry, one more Eli cash line who apparently is the one that, that I quote, but when he's on the phone and it's why would a reviewer make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you especially think I'm not a genius? 
You didn't even have to think about it, did you? Uh, it's it's so good. I, I I wish I don't know what like you know. Obviously, Owen Wilson has gone off, had a successful career, and had his own personal troubles. I do want to know what it would be like if Owen Wilson and Wes mm-hmm. Anderson wrote a movie together again. Like, what would that be like? What would what you know? Would they be able? to make it happen again. Uh, and, and would they capture any of this magic? Not that the, not that the, either of them need the magic. We, we, uh, we, we, we love both of them, but I would, I wonder what it would look like. Well, I feel very vindicated because I specifically left Rushmore <laughs> and Royal Tenenbaums off my list because I figured it would be really high up on both of yours. And also like, you know, I love both those movies. They're great movies, but I think again, if I'm thinking, I'm looking at my list, I'm gravitating towards, more of the kind of like mm. fantastical, whimsical mm-hmm. uh, stories for sure. And I, you know, that's just me. So um, I think this was good. I think we, we, we did it. We did. It took two hours and 40 minutes, <laughs> but we, we talked our hearts out about Wes Anderson. And that was great. Um, at, at the risk of adding more, any final thoughts, anything that you wanted to say that we didn't get to say, I don't know how that's possible in two hours and 40 minutes, but I think now we have to, to start like doing uh, another level of describing the podcast and the movie. Um, we need another <laughs> framing device to close this mm-hmm. out. I'm trying to think of what that would be like, like I'm just, now I'm just picturing like an animated short of us, like writing in the Google doc and texting each other. <laughs> trying to do our sound tests like that that would probably be our frame frame narrative i i'll um, just close by giving a shout out um so moonrise kingdom didn't make anybody's top five which is another entry point for a lot of people i think that's what i said before um i just want to shout out uh yeah. i work at a university and i bonded with our librarian because i was uh, in a meeting in our, our head librarian's office and i saw on her wall she had a picture of herself dressed as um i believe she was dressed as uh Susie from Moonrise Kingdom with a, a Max and or not Max, a boy. What's the boy's name? I don't remember. Uh, and so uh, uh, Shakovsky is the last name. I'm totally blanking out his first name. Okay. PT's on so it. So I said, to Sarah, I was like, oh, that's a great picture. Is that, you know, you and your friend? Like, how did, and she's like, Oh, that's that's how I met my wife. Um, I went to a Halloween party dressed as one of the kids from Moonrise Kingdom, and her wife was there. Sam, uh, she was dressed, I believe, as Sam, and her wife was there dressed as Susie, or vice versa. And I was like, "That is the most twee meet cute I have ever heard in my life," and I could (laughs) not love it and you more just by knowing that you are now married to the person you accidentally were in a Wes Anderson couples costume with. So, uh, so no disrespect, leaving moonrise kingdom off my list. I think that movie kind of loses its steam as it goes on. So it's not my favorite. It didn't, it it was, it was on my long list. I haven't rushed it since like, uh, uh, I did a general rewatch, but it was like four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I need to watch it again if I'm going to actually rank it. Um, but I do remember leaving the theater and being like, I love that movie. Um, and, and watching again and being like, yeah, that movie's really fun, but, um, just not, not hanging on me as much as other than asteroid city. That's the one I've seen in the theater. Most recently I saw it at the Brattle like a month ago. And, um, 
the crowd was really into it, which, you know, it's funny to me that these are so specific and not for normies, as we said, yet when you get a repertory theater showing one of these, like the crowd that shows up is very vocal and very into it. And, um, you know, maybe I'll finally stop talking by saying like, Anybody listening, if if one of these shows up at, at one of your local theaters, you should definitely go see it. And I think um, the Brattle did his full filmography, which I really wanted to attend more of, but only got to Moonrise Kingdom because of scheduling. But uh, I, I think they were really pleased with turnout, so I hope they do it again. I'll just end by saying, I think what we found <laughs> is there are no normies. There's just everyone is a weirdo about the things they're weirdos about. And maybe you're not a Wes Anderson weirdo, but you're a weirdo about something. I love it. All right. So let's wrap this up. I was not disappointed at all by this conversation. I think what happened was like, this is the first time the three of us, even off mic, have had a chance yeah. to talk about Wes Anderson. And then, and therefore we've exploded into a nearly three hour podcast, uh, <laughs> which is great. Um, thank you. If you've stuck with us. Uh, so Greg, where can folks find you? They don't need on the any more of me than what they just it? received. This was full unabashed Greg. Uh, but if they're still <laughs> listening, they uh, want you can more find clearly me on Instagram at ion cannon. That's E Y E O N C A N O N. I am guesting on a bunch of podcasts lately and having a good time, hoping we can find some scheduled time to do indie on this uh, very podcast soon. Um, but uh, yeah, whatever I do, I post there or ioncanon.com is me and my Substack. So uh, yeah. And thanks to uh, oh, our grad school friend, Shannon, who just reached out and praised our Spider-Verse takes. That was very sweet. She's probably not listening because she didn't see this movie. But hey, there's the shout out. <laughs> and PT, where can people find you? Uh, they can uh, find me on Instagram. Uh, potentially, I'm going to start to rise it up again and have it not be dormant. I can't guarantee that. Uh, but Instagram and Letterboxd uh, at PT McNiff, P-T-M-C-N-I-F-F. Uh, and that's it. That's it for for me. And you can find me on Instagram at Subchakshai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I, and on Letterboxd at Gen. Thank you both. I wish I had some like Wes Anderson quote, but I think we've been so exhaustive. It's nothing left. So <laughs> thanks everybody. You can't wake up you can't if you don't go to sleep. You don't go to sleep. There you go. We've clearly. <laughs> can't wake up if you don't go to sleep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You can follow The Long Take on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe for free to receive reviews of films with Oscar buzz, as well as new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.